This episode of the Forge Podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of Theo Fattel and Brady Turner, along with all of our other amazing Patreon supporters. If you would like to become part of the Forge community, you can learn more at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. Thank you. Welcome to the Forge. Hello, Gamer Nation, and welcome to The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast covering everything that you need to know about the latest and greatest from Fantasy Flight Games' Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. I'm your host, GM Hooley, and we have a very special episode tonight with a very special guest host that I'm dying to introduce. But first, what's on the episode tonight? I hear you ask... I'm glad you asked, because in Diecasting, we'll be doing something a little bit different with a listener request to look at heroic abilities from Realms of Terranoth. In the Furnace, we'll be joined by special guest host Sam Gregor-Stewart as we ready the potting mix to help nurture and grow a discussion on the creation of specialization trees. In Breaking the Mold, we'll be talking to Caleb Smith about his offering on the Foundry, The Survivalist Guide to Survival. Love the title, can't wait to uh, talk to him about that. And of course, we'll be answering your games and rules questions in Under the Hammer. For now, however, let me introduce you to one of my favourite people in the world. It's GM Chris. Chris, how you going, buddy? I'm all right, man. They're kind of cool. Yeah, like like you know, just coming off the wave. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm fantastic. Right, uh, I think you've been listening to that turtle too much from uh, uh, from Finding Nemo um, or uh, Finding. Dor- <laughs> Do you know that I'd never seen Finding Dory up until recently, and the kids said really? that they wanted to they wanted to watch it, and I've gone, okay, I've never seen it, and it's oh, it's it's, it's, it's so heartening. Yeah. It's, it's it was truly it's truly amazing. It's yeah. really good, really good. <laughs> yeah, love- yeah, like shockingly good. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm a dad of a daughter, a young daughter, so I, yeah. I, I I watch all this stuff a lot with a lot more frequency. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I had now, you know what sucks about this is what? that it inspired me, and I will never be able to release it on the Foundry. Right. <laughs> but I I introduced my daughter to Avatar: The Last Airbender. Oh. And she devoured all three seasons <laughs> in like four days. Really. That's awesome. Yes. Um, and it occurs to me that like like a magic reskin would be epic for you know uh you know an avatar you know setting. Yeah. Um, but oh, I don't know. Maybe a future project. But yeah, anyway, yeah, man. I I don't know. I am I am super excited um for tonight's episode though. Like yeah. like 
you know, we, we uh, first of all, I'm really excited about Stoking the Fire because uh, we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about. Mm. Um, there's been some really interesting stuff coming out of the Foundry. But it, beyond that, man, getting into, as we get into, as you mentioned, as we get into die casting in the furnace, like, I'm I'm just super excited for the discussion. And I'm super in- excited to talk to Sam about specialization trees because we th- this has been a discussion a long time coming ever since, quite frankly, Star Wars. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, now now that the EPG is out, we can have this meaningful discussion. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to really diving into his brain i think i said that last episode that that uh, you know i've been involved a, a lot with some of the playtesting that uh, that they did for star wars uh and yeah we had a lot to do with the talent trees and and how they operate so to get yeah. how things work in the in the background from a studio perspective i'm really looking forward to that and hopefully uh, people will as well so but anyway, we have a whole heap of stuff to do, including talking about what's new on the Foundry and a whole heap of news and announcements. So, Chris, what do you reckon we get into some stoking the fire? Sounds like a great plan. I'm happy to be a part of it. Let's do it. <laughs> stoking the fire. And welcome to Stoking the Fire, a segment dedicated to letting you know all there is to know about the releases from the Genesis Foundry and the Genesis role-playing game. But first, Chris, would you like to tell us about the D20 Radio podcast of the week? Absolutely, I would, because I love talking about them. This would be our sister podcast on uh, D20 Radio, Don't Despair, mm. um, another fantastic uh, Genesis podcast. Obviously, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Genesis RPG, <laughs> um, uh, which uh, you know a lot, of, a lot of very strong community members, of course, a lot of listeners of the show will, will know uh, the voice of, and, and, and of Scott Zumwalt, who's actually guested with us here also um, on our own podcast. Mm. Um, but yeah, Don't Despair is a lot of fun, and they actually just recently uh, released their fifth episode tactical combat mm. uh, which was a really interesting discussion uh, Scott and Matt totally got into it about how to be tactical in Genesis combat mm. which is something that uh, I guess a little more seasoned role players that are used to playing a certain way can get a little flighty with the narrative style of combat mm. and they tackle this in a very interesting way but it's a great episode you guys really have to give it a listen um, so go check it out and you guys can find it along with many other amazing gaming and geekery podcasts over at d20 Radio. Dot com. Those guys really did a good job in that episode, and I was so oh, glad to, to have them back on the air with, I know. Uh, with the discussion, and they really get into it in a way that a beginner can really appreciate where they're coming from as well. So, uh, yes. so well done, guys. So, uh, yeah, so, they yeah. did great. Mm, absolutely. All right, Chris, I think it's time to talk about some new releases on the Foundry. What's our first one? The, yeah. Yeah, there's been quite a few since our last episode. Mm. Um, uh, the, the first is from new author Neil Cobb, who provides us with an adventure module called Hero Time, number one, Lair of the Plague Doctor. <laughs> Enter the world of Verbis as you and a small band of heroes infiltrate the dark lair of the evil Plague Doctor to try to stop him before he can unleash a dread disease upon the land. <laughs> Um, it, it's really cool. Uh, the adventure module is about 19 page, like quest book. Um, it's illustrated in this, I'm in love with the art style. It's this hand drawn art style, very mm-hmm. uniquely gorgeous. Yep. Um, the module also comes with five pre-gen characters, a knight, a wizard, medic, soldier, and rogue, um, as well as six new enemies in the module, uh, plus an NPC as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes with a map to play on and even, I love it when, when adventure models do this, there is a PDF included that contains tokens you can cut out and play with for the PCs and the enemies. Nice. Um, 
And dude, it's only four bucks. Yeah, that's uh, pretty good. Which is a fantastic price for a wonderful, wonderful fantasy module. Yeah, especially something that you can get uh, repeated use out of. Because if, if you've yeah. got tokens, um, you know, if you're uh, using stuff online, then obviously, you know, you can be using it for uh, for your own tokens in your other games as well. So uh, well worth it. And it's pretty cheap too. So that's great. Um, next up, though, is Terranoth Exotic Species from Giri Raman uh, for those looking for something new to explore in character creation. Now, the blurb says this supplement takes six adversaries found in the realms of Terranoth setting and expands them into playable species while exploring their rules and facets. While this supplement expands the lore of the realms of Terranoth setting, these species can be used in any Genesis fantasy game. Now, the supplement does include six new species, um, the Dragon Hybrid, the Beastman, the Minotaur, the Lizardman, the Markim, and the Vantala Centaur. I hope I said that right. Uh, there's new racial talents, new gear, new weapons, implements, craftsmanship. Is there anything this product doesn't have? Um, it's got species-specific potions, which is a really interesting thing, uh, with Alexa's, uh, elixirs. Sorry, that's my Australianism coming out there. Uh, there's <laughs> <laughs> the elixirs and poisons. Uh, there's uh, 12 new adversaries, which is absolutely fantastic, uh, and uh, additional allies as well, focusing on mounts and companions for your exotic species, which is another unique idea. Uh, there's role-playing tips on how to use those exotic species in your campaign, and even with all of that, there are still six organizations and NPCs to introduce exotic species into your game. That is a lot of content, let me tell you, and it's only three ninety nine. So, you know, if you need to go out there and take a look at that, it's amazing. And he's done a fantastic job of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm in love with the concept too, you know, and, and the idea of taking these these classically monstrous, you know, threats and turning them into playable species is yeah. is wonderful in and of itself. But yeah. then what he did was so much more than a list of archetypes. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, well done, Gary. Well done. Mm. And speaking of well done, next we have Salvage, the Genesis sci-fi cyberpunk setting. Now, this one's been written by newcomer Jared Matthew and was edited and proofread by someone we'll be speaking with shortly on the show, and that's Sam Gregor Stewart. So you can only imagine that this is a fantastic product. Now, the blurb says, Scorching sands, hot enough to melt tires, homicidal alien robots, wondrous relics buried beneath mountains of junk. It's all part of life on Omega, the last planet anyone would want want to call home. Unfortunately, you don't have a choice. What life will you salvage from the wreckage? Will you hunt down rusting mechanical monsters? Salvage valuable scrap from the wrecked starships of your ancestors? Discover mysterious technology within time-worn alien ruins? How will you build your destiny in this dangerous land? And if you've ever played Horizon Zero Dawn, uh, this setting sounds very familiar indeed. Now, this setting supplement for the Genesis RPG uh, provides an original science fiction post-apocalyptic world for game masters and players to survive and explore. Now, this supplement includes four new archetypes, 16 new careers, and 50 new talents. That's huge. Uh, which is, um, you know, great for this campaign as well as any post-apocalyptic cyberpunk 
uh, or junk punk, as he likes to call it, setting. And uh, new rules for six psychic powers, including astral projection, telekinesis, and Reiki healing, which is kind of cool. New rules for salvaging scrap and tech from wreckage and ruins. And for using that scrap and tech to build and modify weapons and gear. You then have weapons, gear, and vehicles to prepare you for your treks into the harsh and vicious dustlands. Uh, there's a wide assortment of adversaries from merciless scavengers to deadly alien robots. And lastly, you have a detailed setting full of mysteries to explore and uncover. Plus, it recommends we stay tuned for future adventures and expansions in the world of Salvage. This is a fantastic product, and uh, we've certainly fallen in love with it here. And we know you will as well, and for $9.99, although a little steeper than some, it's certainly worth it. The production value alone is fantastic. Uh, and if you're not convinced uh, that this is a fantastic product that you need to go and download and purchase right away, uh, we'll be talking to Gerard on our next show in Breaking the Mold, where we'll rack his brain about the sensational new entry into the foundry that is Salvage. So can't wait for that. Chris, what's our last entry? Now, our last entry this week is a joint project, actually. Mm. Between Randall Mason and The Machine, which will be forever what I will call him, The Machine, Chris Markham, um, with their Terranoth-compatible product, Vile Villains. Mm. Uh, you know, because heroes are only good guys when compared to the vileness of the villains they face. Mm. Um, this is a pretty cool collection of Terranoth villains. Uh, they detail eight different villains, including seven that are derived from Terranoth lore, um, and one brand new species as well. Mm. Each villain is fully fleshed out, described, illustrated, and just given a ton of other information to assist GMs in including them in their campaigns. Awesome. This includes descriptions of the villains' backgrounds, their motivations, their lairs, <laughs> um, along with, of course, Genesis stats for each. Um, in addition, uh, the supplement provides optional rules for a new mechanic called Reach and Resources mm. for your next or current campaign villain, yeah. uh, which is a really interesting mechanic that allows you to kind of roll up kind of what this villain can have at their fingertips, yep. which is, is quite frankly for me worth the price alone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, very, very cool uh, new product. It's two bucks. Mm. Check it out. You can't say no to that, that's for sure. So, you can find the and many more Genesis Foundry content over at drivethroughrpg.com by simply performing a search using the words Genesis Foundry. And while you're surfing the web, why not jump over and become a supporter of The Forge by joining our Patreon? For as little as $2 a month, you can access our dedicated Discord server where you can interact with fellow Genesmiths <laughs> about the game and your Foundry ideas. Yeah, we really like that. So, <laughs> so thanks, Rob, for that suggestion. I think that's going to stick. <laughs> I think so too. That one just might stick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anywho, higher tiers provide a priority for your games and rules questions on the show, with our largest tier not only providing you with a special thank you at the top of the show itself, but a special monthly get together with either Hooli or myself to discuss your Foundry product, your home campaign, perhaps even run through some playtesting of new material with GM Hooli mm. as your game master of ceremonies. <laughs> Very exciting. Although I, about thought, that. I thought GMC was my title. But that's, yeah. <laughs> 
I might have to steal it just for that. Um, but yeah, I'm very, very excited about that. So uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a little bit more playtesting in. Um, but uh, no matter what, anything you can spare to show your support uh, for the podcast is appreciated with all of your donations uh, helping the podcast directly so we can continue providing you with excellent regular Genesis content. So Gamma Nation, join the Forge community by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis. You know, our 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 our, our Genesmiths, our, our Patreons, man, <laughs> they're they're quite heroic. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes they are. They 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 they're heroic in their abilities. <laughs> um this is this is this is this segue is not working very well at all. <laughs> not at but, all. But but you know I, I'm okay with that. I'm 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 confident in my own segwayhood, um, or, or lack thereof. You know it, right. it, it's whatever, man. You you want to get into some diecast? Yeah, I think that's a really good idea right now. <laughs> Diecasting. The Forge Podcast is all about bringing new creations to the table, and the Genesis RPG provides us with a powerful set of tools to do so, specifically through skills and talents. Now, normally, the diecasting segment is about closely examining individual skills and talents and how they relate to the creations you craft. But tonight, we're going to do something a little different. Last episode, we lifted the lid on the social agenda of the leadership skill, and we thought tonight we might take a look at a rule first presented in the realms of Taranoff's setting book. And by that, we mean heroic abilities. Indeed. Now, each of the setting books thus far have presented a new mechanic that can seem like something only available in that setting. But in this episode, we'll be spending our story points to really get into the inner workings of heroic abilities. What are they? How do they work? And how are they constructed? Now, this is all going to be with the aim of offering some advice on using them in settings other than Realms of Terranoth. And it's something that we'll probably continue to do um, in this segment as we continue on with the podcast. And finally, towards the end of the show, we'll offer you our Peace de la Resistance, where we'll build a brand new heroic ability alive on the show to show you just how easy it really is. Now, Chris, the heroic ability mechanics is by far my most favorite uh, I, in, in all of the mechanics that are presented thus far in all of the games. And, you know, that's saying a lot because I absolutely love the favors mechanic from Shadow of the Beanstalk. But uh, look, I think because I think that favors really resembles obligation from uh, Edge of the Empire, and that's my favorite mechanic out of the the three that were presented in, in the Star Wars line. Um, I know, but uh, heroic abilities just ha- is so versatile, and it's something that I'm a, a big supporter of when you're talking about super heroic settings, and I know that I, I riff about that all the time, but it's something that. I've grabbed a hold of because I think you can start to build on that using these to give the big powers in inverted commas to uh, superheroes, but it's also to allow characters to to be just really good at one specific aspect of their character's background or or their general theme or the role that they play in the campaign. I I love 
heroic abilities because, it, as you, you said a moment ago, it, it's more theme than anything else. Yeah. Um, I was actually having this discussion, uh, a discussion actually earlier today, um, with uh, with DM Eric from the Eberron Renewed podcast mm-hmm. uh, into the mechanics behind heroic abilities and, and how that's being used and how critical it is for, you know, not just Terranoth or not even just a fantasy setting, which I think every fantasy setting should have them, mm-hmm. but as we'll talk about how it's a real viable option <clears throat> for virtually any setting. But mm-hmm. it's one of those things that it gives you this, you know, Genesis is so fluid and so narrative, and you can so easily mix and match and create this very hybrid kind of character, especially if you're using the talent pyramid. Now, you can lock that down a lot with specialization trees, which I know we're going to talk about later in this episode. Mm. But heroic abilities are one of those things that allow you to flesh out at character creation a defined, straightforward, and immalleable path in one aspect of your character's archetype. Yeah. And I'm not talking about their species. I'm talking about their, <laughs> their, their, their meta story. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, in terms, in terms of, of all these things that, whether it's a fancy item or a unique personality trait or ability, despite all the cool in-game benefits they give you, these types of heroic abilities are often typically associated with a very deep-seated personality trait or character feature yeah. that really helps embody it. And I think that's something that really separates this from your average talent, for example. Yeah. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I'm really eager to talk about this. Let, let's get into it. Let's talk about the basics. Hooli, what is a heroic ability? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, now, the heroic abilities were introduced in Realms of Terranoth. It's on page 74. Um, and it goes for about six or seven pages. And the the basic description of a heroic ability in the book is, and, and I'll paraphrase here, these abilities help set characters apart as a true hero. As a character grows in experience, they receive ability points, which a player spends on upgrading and further customizing their character's heroic ability. Now, this is clearly based on the heroic abilities that each of the characters have in the Descent Adventure board game, which is also set in Terranoth. And a lot of the the information that we see in Terranoth comes from that game. Yeah. Um, Where once per adventure, a character can use their heroic ability to perform an outstanding act of heroism, that they can do this massive attack or they can, you know, move exactly where they need to do or, or whatever else. So that's what they've used as a base. So there are currently 11 heroic abilities in the Realms of Terranoth setting book, each with three levels of power. Um, and I'll, we'll get on to that later on. But heroic abilities then have 12 different upgrade options. So there's five standard ones, and one of them basically has the rest to, to make up the 12 um, that you can use with um, you know some capable of, of being purchased multiple times. At character creation, players choose a single heroic ability to apply to their character. Now, during play... PCs activate their character's heroic abilities by spending two story points, initially anyway, uh, which brings the normal rule of one story point per turn uh, per player to, you know, it subverts that, which is a really interesting concept. In fact, one of the, the upgrade options that players can choose when they choose the your upgrades as you go, they can, it can reduce the cost to only one story point. But the story point is the, the focus of how to power those heroic abilities. And it means that they don't happen all the time. They only happen at the dramatically appropriate moment. But it is something that is 
that uh, really sets them apart, which is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely. Now, each of the heroic abilities, I mean, at least how they're listed in, in Realms of Terranoff, they, they have a specific layout, do they not? Yeah, they do. The, there's specifically four parts. The, the first is the general description. So call it the, the fluff text or, or whatever else that we might see before a talent. Uh, this is then followed with the mechanical benefit provided by the ability. Now, it, uh, it then lists as part of that, it lists three sections. And you might sort of recognize this, that there's the base ability, which you would have when you first get that uh, heroic ability. You then have an improved version, and you then have a supreme version. Uh, holy, it uh, sounds a lot like talents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. And, and, and I think that's what their initial in, intention was, to mirror sort of the talents and their construction so that it doesn't feel like a completely separate mechanic uh, within the game. So there is some familiarity there. And yet they kind of work the same anyway, that, you know, you have to have the first one first and then you spend some of your ability points and we'll, we'll get on to what ability points are later on, uh, that you then get the improved version. And then after some time, you then get the supreme version. So, they, yeah, they work exactly like talents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is what is great. With heroic abilities, and to be honest, the, the, the rules for them are, are truly genesis in nature, mm. and I think that's by design. Mm. The reason is that although extensive mechanics exist for each of the 11 abilities available, not all abilities need to be the same narratively. Yeah. And and we'll, I know we're going to spend more time on that, but, but to that point, FFG has listed rules on, on how to create heroic abilities as well. Mm. So tell me about that process. How does that process work? Well, look, it, it's... It can be a little bit confusing, I think, to some people, because when they say create heroic abilities, where's the rules for that? But what they're really saying is that it's a simple three-step process, and it's tailored to a specific character and to make their power completely unique in the, the setting. Even if other characters come into the, the campaign over time, it's going to be completely unique. Now, the recommendation is that the ability that they uh, that they choose should be consistent with your character's background, as you said before, Chris, uh, you know, their role, and then their theme, which is something that you pointed out as well. And, and in turn, this allows the character to set themselves apart from non-heroes and other PCs within the campaign, which gives players exactly what it says it does on the on the back of the box to to uh, to <laughs> that that it's giving them exactly what they want their characters to be, and the the three step process which I'll go through, and it it does leave a lot up to the players' imaginations to help them fill in the blanks. Now, step one is to choose the primary ability effect. So all that is is that you're looking at the 11 core abilities and which ones that you would choose. And we'll go through each of those later on. Um, step two is to determine your ability's origin. Now, there are 10 suggested origins ranging from, you know, exposure to intense magic uh, through to years of self-discipline and training to master their craft. So there's a wide gambit there. Uh, players can can then decide um, whether they want to just pick up from the list or they can roll on that table, to which is on page 80, and it's uh, table 2.2, uh, Heroic Ability Origin. So they've got two options there. Or 
you can come up with something completely unique. Uh, The third step is to name your ability. And this is what I love about this is that, sure, the base effect may have a name, but you don't have to call it that. You can call it whatever you want so that it's more tailored to your character and to the story that you want your character to be able to be a part of and to tell themselves. Now, the book gives two examples of how you can apply the process. But you know what? I think it'd be more fun to probably do our own. But before we do, I guess we need to look at what these different abilities are. Now, Chris, do you want to take the first few and, um, you know, I'll follow on through the rest? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. hmm. Um, So first off uh, of of that that Core 11, uh, we have all the facts. All right. Now, as we go through these, you guys will see that they they each tie to a very specific character type or a character theme. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So all the facts is is the, the scholarly theme, basically. <laughs> you know all the facts at the right time, forcing basically allowing you to force the GM to give you a facet of important information in the current scene. So whether you're, you're a scholarly knowledge character or somebody who just has their ears everywhere and fingers in every pie, yeah. it was really represented there. Yeah. Um, now that is, is somewhat related in, in a sense to the next one, which is connected. Yeah. Um, this heroic ability allows your character to know everything there is to know about everyone. Very well suited to charismatic characters. Mm. Um, we have then one of my favorites, which is foretelling, <laughs> um, which is your, your character is has, has visions. They can see the future. Mm. And in, in the first instance of this, the, 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 the initial ability, you, you get to ask yes or no questions, mm. um, you know, clairvoyant style. Mm. But after that, it just gets better and better and better. <laughs> Um, and then we have hard to kill. If if the thing from the Fantastic Four had an ability, it would be this one. <laughs> um, uh, epitomized by the thing. Yeah. Um, so you know, to begin with, it gives you massively increased soak, but it ends with complete immunity to damage, basically, when you're able to activate it. Yeah. So yeah. very cool. Absolutely. Now, some of these abilities are going to sound over the top and massively powerful, but there are some restrictions, and we'll talk about that soon. Um, but uh, to continue on the list, uh, the next one we have is influential. Um, so, you know, if you need to sell tea to China, this is the ability for that. <laughs> you know, you are a silver tongue go-getter. Uh, this coupled with scathing tirade and they'll be dropping like flies when it comes to uh, taking damage from, uh, from strain. Uh, this uh, yeah, influential is fantastic as an ability. The next one is miraculous recovery. So if you want regeneration for you know your Wolverine or whatever, and I know I keep going back to superheroes, but anyway, um, Wolverine, saber tooth, Wolverine, saber tooth, Wolverine, saber tooth, it in your lot. I'm working nights. <clears throat> <laughs> I forgot that sketch. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is basically how you get generation uh, regeneration in your in your setting, uh, and it starts with you get a few extra wounds each round, uh, three in fact, and it builds up to you can heal a critical injury instantly. Uh, it's uh, it's insane. Uh, the next one is Paragon, and you know they say it best in Top Gun: "You are the best, the best of the best." Or maybe that was a parody. I'm not quite sure. Uh, so it's the ability to remove difficulty dice after they've been rolled, which is fantastic. 
you know, it's it's not as good though as removing challenge dice, which it does in the final tier. Yes. So it's it's nuts. <laughs> And uh, there's also Sixth Sense. You know, this is, you really start more like Dr. Doolittle or uh, or a mild telepath. And, uh, you know, you soon learn to communicate with mere thought. Um, and eventually you can extract vital information from the minds of the weak. So it is true sort of telepathy, which is fantastic. But um, this... you, start, you start you start off as Jean Grey, you end up as <laughs> Professor X. Correct. You know, it's, yeah, yes, it's, yeah, it's yes. where you come down. <laughs> um, now, one of the more popular ones after that uh, is Signature Weapon. Yeah. Um, an absolute fan favorite, uh, where you obtain a, a because it's a, it's a it's a classic fantasy archetype, right? Right. right. You know, as far as theme, you know, this is my father's sword. You know. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, and uh, obviously you can thank Aragorn for all of that, right? <laughs> um, you know, but but the idea is that you obtain a favored weapon to wield, and that weapon only gets better and better and better over time, mm-hmm. allowing you to add weapon qualities and attachments at no cost, yep. um, to the point that you've got you know a Herculean <laughs> piece of equipment. So, um, yeah, abs- absolutely love it. Um, now. Miraculous recovery is pretty, pretty cool. Hard mm-hmm. to kill is pretty, pretty cool. But then there's unbowed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can fight on even if you're almost dead. Even if you're mostly dead. <laughs> and eventually, as you advance in this, you can fight on when you are dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is which is insane. You're just the Energizer Bunny, and you keep going even after you've got a sword plunged through your heart. It's, yeah, it, I mean it's 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 incredible. Um, you know, and if you get a little bit of dark magic in there, you know, you get you get the mountain. You know, yeah. From, yeah. yeah I mean, there, you know, there you go. Absolutely. Um, and then lastly, we have uh, of the eleven uh, in the core book, we have unleashed. Yeah. Unleashed, a, a masterful ability. You can unleash whatever power that you choose to easily elim- eliminate minions. Um, eventually, learning to destroy them all within short range. Yeah. Which which reminds me, a lot of these remind me to some degree of of you know signature abilities uh, from Star Wars. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and un- unleashed probably more so than all the rest. Mm. Definitely, definitely. And um, if people want to see what Unleashed looks like, uh, if they go to the characters that you can download uh, for the uh, from FFG uh, for the first adventure module that they did, um, the the Haunted City, there is a gnome in that uh, package which uh, has this as an ability, except that uh, they are small little bombs that uh that she uses and uh yeah so it's these things and we'll talk about this more and i know i keep saying that but these things can just be this is the mechanical benefit but how can we put flavor into that so yes um, i i i I keep thinking of of the anime swordsman who's surrounded by like 30 ninjas and he just like (laughs) There's a quick flash as, he, as, his, as you see a brief glint of blade coming out of his his uh, you know his samurai sword sheath, yeah. his katana sheath, and then it goes back in almost immediately, and then everyone stands still for a minute, and then all thirty minions just blood starts spurting everywhere, and they all all their legs are cut off. You know, that's that, that's how I envision yeah. it. Yeah, I'm thinking John Wick definitely has this uh, this ability. There is no two oh, ways about that. <laughs> so okay, holy we. We've covered these eleven core abilities, but mm-hmm. you know, we said we were going to do a live build on the air yep. for our own heroic ability. Let's roll it up, man. Yeah, I agree. That that sounds cool. So, 
We'll need just a 10-sided dice um, to roll our origin. So, uh, okay. Chris, do you want to go and grab a D10? I got you one second. Uh, 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 <laughs> we'll just talk amongst ourselves for a bit. <laughs> got it, got it, got it. Yeah. Very okay. good. I have a D10. Very good. <laughs> you have sound like you have a lot of dice there. All right. Maybe. So <laughs> I think we all have that problem. Um, so maybe there should be like um, Dice Owners Anonymous. Anyway, I digress. So <laughs> so let's look firstly at the backstory. Now, I think for this, I've got a pretty solid idea. Okay. Um, so, for me, the the character that I'm thinking about, uh, because, and I'm going to try to sort of draw you towards one of these special abilities and see if you can work out what I'm talking about. So, I'm thinking about a con artist. Now, he's, uh, he's a rogue from the slums and, and he's made his way up uh, by swindling his way to the top. Uh, he's, you know, very much a ladies' man with a bit of a silver tongue, uh, but he's not particularly bright. Um, he's, he's more about cunning. Um, he's probably a gambler or something. Um, he's very much like the Scarlet Pimpernel. Um, and, uh, but yeah, he's a gambler. He's a very good one. Um, so, you know, he's, he's managed to make his way up from nothing. Um, but recently he's kind of got himself in the hot water, uh, with the local mayor, so I'm not sure how that's going to work yet, but that's just off the top of my head. So what ability do you reckon that I'm talking about, Chris? Oh, dude, it's obvious. Influential. Absolutely it is. That's uh, the vibe. That's the vibe he's giving <laughs> off. Completely. All right. So um, we've decided this is, uh, this is the uh, ability that we're going to use. Uh, we would be doing up the fluff for the character, um, as I've sort of described. Uh, and then the the second step for the process is to work out the origin. So, Chris, why don't you give us a roll there? Okay. Uh, seven. Awesome. This is really good. <laughs> so, um, on the table, the a seven is blessed slash cursed. So, the character's ability is the result of a blessing or a curse. Perhaps the character hopes to find a way to lift the curse or must abide by a code of behavior in order to retain the benefits of their blessing. Oh, I got so many ideas for that. <laughs> All right, you go ahead first. Well, okay, so I'm thinking. Uh, okay, uh, uh, plagiarism is a serious form of, since most sincere form of flattery, right? <laughs> right. Um, are you familiar with the book, uh, The Lies of Locke Lamora? I am. Yeah, okay, so what you've got here is a character that, maybe not like Locke, where Locke is an honest-to-God priest of the god of theft, okay? Right, right. Um, maybe not that severe, but but the point is, you know, the the I love I love the idea that he's blessed or maybe cursed, depending on how you want, kind of want to look at it. Mm. He has the eye of the patron deity of thieves upon him. Mm. Now, maybe this, maybe this is the result of just a sort of divine event that, that is, is just on him, mm -hmm. um, where he's got, he has the eye or the favor of that deity. Maybe it's the result of an artifact he carries, like something he may not even, he may know or may not even realize he knows is what's giving him his 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 unusual ability, you know, maybe like a rabbit's foot or something, you mm -hmm. know, un, you know, unusual like that. Yeah. But like, 
he in order to to maintain this power he has to abide by a very specific code which is basically being a cad right um <laughs> the the instant he starts acting like an honest up johnny then he he's going to lose you know or, or you know bad things are going to start happening to him basically right right that's <laughs> cool. i don't know that's my thought no look i can't beat that i don't think that's amazing <laughs> So whether it be a lucky coin or, as you said, a rabbit's foot or maybe it's oh, his a co- lucky... No, a coin. A coin is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and it needs, just... to be, it needs to be like the, it needs to be like a worn and completely scratched up copper. Yeah. Like, you know, or whatever the lowest form of currency is in the setting. Yeah. That's cool. Awesome. <laughs> so that's how easy it is to, to roll up an ability. Um, and as I said, there are some uh, there's some examples that are in the uh, on the last page of uh, of how to apply that, and um, you know there's some good story background there as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's as simple as that. Now, of course, we can't f- miss the final point, which is step three, um, which is to name the ability. Now, in this case. Um, you know, we won't think too hard on it, um, but it is something that you obviously spend a little bit of time, um, you know, considering what uh, you're going to have since it's going to be with you for the rest of your character's career. <laughs> um, so it might be something like, I don't know, um, Curse of the Silver Tongue uh, <laughs> to uh, to bring in uh, Chris's idea of the curse. And uh, I mentioned Silver Tongue before. <laughs> of course, uh, you can be a lot more creative than myself and come up with something, um, you know, appropriately dramatic. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so there's that. Now, holy... Are there limit? We, we, we didn't talk about. Are there limitations to these abilities? Because they all seem really, really good. Look, they they do. There is no two ways about that. Now, by default, acting a heroic ability requires you to spend two story points, and I mentioned that before. Um, the effects of the heroic ability last until the end of the character's next turn, um, and it can only have activated once per session. So. Yes, it's powerful, but it's only going to be powerful at the dramatically appropriate moment um, or where I've just decided to um, spend two story points and nothing really has happened. But <laughs> and that does happen. You don't choose the right moment. But, you know, these things, a lot of them don't require dice rolls to, to be able to activate. So they normally add on to something or they just allow something to occur. So spending two story points is a, is a big chunk of real estate. It's not like Star Wars where you can have up to, you know, 10 destiny points in the pool across the session. You know, you're only having one per character and then one for the GM. So if you've got a, a team of four players or even if you've got a team of six players, you know, you losing two story points in one hit can be really, really dramatic and can change things around. And that's where humans come into play, but that's a side discussion altogether. Um, but the cool thing, though, is that unless stated otherwise in the description of a specific effect, activating a heroic ability is an incidental. So it means you're not using up an action, you're not using up a maneuver. So, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right what you said before, that they are pretty damn powerful, um, but they are limited so that you don't go completely out of control. Well, okay, until we decide to remove limitations, because all these abilities, as you mentioned earlier, can be upgraded, right? Yeah, and, and this is the other really cool thing about the, the mechanics of this system. 
you know, when it comes to, and I'll, I'll go back to Star Wars for a moment, you mentioned before signature abilities. You still needed XP to be able to buy into that tree. And then as you go down the tree, you're spending XP that you could be otherwise spending um, doing other things. Yes, they give you massive abilities, but there's always this XP cost. And with heroic abilities, you don't have that problem because you don't need to invest the XP as they increase in power as your character gets more experience. 50 XP more experience, in fact. So I get a choice of one, uh, basically, of my ability at character creation, and that's Mm. got its core effect. Mm. And then it gets upgraded every time my character earns 50 XP? Yep, absolutely it does. And, you know, you, you get one ability point for every 50 XP. So what happens is that you can then spend that point to upgrade or you can save it for some of the other more powerful upgrades. So, for example, one of the upgrades is frequency, which allows your, your character to use the, their heroic ability one additional time per session, which is fantastic, but that costs two ability points. So if you wanted to be, you know, using Unleash twice, you would have to wait for your character to get 100 earned XP. So that's not, that's after character creation. So 100 earned XP, you then have two ability points, spend it on that, and you can do that twice in the session, which is insanely powerful. Um, and, you know, there are a heap of options, um, and they're all on page 79. Uh, which allows you to expand your character's heroic abilities. But we're not going to go through all of them because you guys can basically read those. But it's well (laughs) worth the investment if you haven't done so already. Now, can you have more than one heroic ability? Not in this uh, setting you can't. Um, In my campaign, though, that I'm running, which um, is a modified version of Legacy of Fire, uh, which is one of the uh, the Paizo Pathfinder adventure paths, um, in that game, uh, the PCs basically came across, well, it came across them, uh, was a, a mythic weapon from a, a, a bygone age. And this weapon has a lot of story connected to it. And so I've given one of the PCs who was in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, depending on which way you want to look at it, uh, I've given them the signature weapon uh, heroic ability in addition to the normal heroic ability that they have. But I've made sure that there are some nasty side effects. He has a constant voice in his head. Um, So, you know, I can be throwing in some fear rules and stuff like that, especially if he's woken up in the middle of the night uh, and things like that. So I, I think that if you decided to allow players to have multiple abilities, ensure that you temper them in some way, um, as the PCs are going to quickly get out of control. Um, so, um, b- but honestly, if uh, if you are running a, a campaign using heroic abilities, I would suggest sticking to the one. Um, and it really gives the PCs that unique flavor without sort of diluting the pool by giving them multiple abilities. But, yeah. but there are some other things to consider, right, Chris? 
There are, and and they're all mentioned in in a few of the sidebars uh, throughout that section of, of Realms of Terranoth, and they really should be considered carefully. Mm-hmm. Probably the most important, um, in my opinion, is the one on page seventy four. Mm-hmm. Um, in there, it suggests that that some of the abilities mentioned, like influential, for example, which we we just we just rolled up and, and did our own <laughs> skin of, right? Yeah, all right. Um, can get tricky if they're used against NPCs and nemeses. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that happens have the player make an opposed check yep. okay if the ability to resist the power is will or intellect based use discipline if it's physical strength resists it use resilience um the other important thing to remember is is that these rules allow you to create your own heroic abilities outside of the 11 core options that are supplied in realms of Terranoth. they aren't spelled out but the the design is such that that allows us to kind of reverse engineer mm. A heroic ability of our own yeah and, and and when you do this you do need to consider very consistently how they will work in unison with the upgrades on page 79 and and not become these uh this and not only that but also not become like a, a must-have heroic ability that outbalances the others yeah. okay it, it needs to balance very closely with the other 11 hmm. um so, Huli, we did our little our, our skin of one of the existing earlier, but we did promise to create a fresh heroic ability live on the show. Yes, we did. And uh, as you know, we always like to do in diecasting, where we create uh, either new uh, gear or new talents. Um, I thought it might be a really cool idea to uh, to create a uh, a heroic ability of our own. Um, so for this, um, I've been thinking because strangely enough, um, I was thinking about superheroes and, and things like that. And, um, but even in a fantasy setting, what happens? And I know that I've got one in my campaign at the moment. He wanted to have a, a character who rather than just focusing on one particular element, whether it be a fire mage or a, a cold mage or something like that. Um, that they can be a master of all magics and, and magical effects. So I'm thinking that our ability should be called Elementalist. Does that sound cool? That sounds really cool. <laughs> all right. Now, we're not going to go through the blurb about how it would be. Obviously, that's going to be determined by the setting. And if we're trying to make this as generic as possible, we're not going to go into the nitty gritties of, of how that would work within our setting. Yeah, in terms of like we the exercise we went through where we did yeah. a random roll and we determined you know the, the root cause and then the backstory behind it. Yeah, that should be unique to not just the setting but the player as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so exactly. yeah, I think I think we should focus though on the core mechanical effects here. Right. So one of the things that I've been thinking about with regards to this uh, heroic ability is that we want them to be a master of of all of the different types of elements. So one of the things that I've been thinking about, we could have it that they have access to each of the magic skills in some way. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of that. No. Um, hmm. You know, and, and this actually this actually goes back to actually the very conversation I was having today with with DM Eric. Right. The pro- the problem is, if you're going to give a character like a mage, okay, well, and, and just to use an example, let's say somebody who has Arcana on their career list, right. okay, mm-hmm. if you're going to give them access to a spell like Heal, even temporarily that they would normally not be able to cast. Mm-hmm. Allowing them, it, 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 that's actually not even thinking about it the right way. You're saying, should we allow them to access divine to, yeah. to cast that? 
that's actually a horrible idea. Mm. You shouldn't you shouldn't force them to use divine because they're not going to be optimized to do it. Yeah. It's, it would be a wasted ability. They, their mm. pool is going to suck. Yes. Okay. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, not not to mention even if you you know we're, we're saying you know well would it be balanced to allow them to spend XP? That's not the right question to ask. Mm. The question to ask is would it be imbalance to force them to spend xp on it in order to have a meaningful dice pool when they do it yeah that's the real question and it has a very clear answer and the answer is no so honestly man if we're talking about the base effect here Mm. considering that has this is this very limited how often you can do this Mm. i I think i think they should be able to use any magic skill they wish Mm. when they're casting a, a spell using this elementalist heroic ability yeah absolutely now, uh, so that's certainly the the way that I was thinking about it as well, is that that was my first thought. And it, it, I guess what I'm trying to do, I'm thinking out loud a little bit here, so that people can get an idea of, of the design process of, of how we've gone about doing this, I think. We want this ability to be able to be a little bit more far-reaching so that you can be a master of a lot more than just what you have access to. So I think probably a really good way of doing that is to allow them to gain access to a different spell that is outside their skill list. So the uh, if you've got a, a arcane, you can't cast heal. So perhaps we can for a short period of time because we're talking about a heroic ability that we allow them to gain access to to heal. Um, and the same sort of thing for uh, for verse. If you've got uh, a character with verse, which is, again, from Realms of Terranoth, which doesn't have access to the attack spell, so why not allow them to have access to the attack spell? Yeah, for, you know, for once during the session. Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. So I think that that's probably the, the right way of going about doing it. But we need to balance that in some way so that it, things aren't going crazy. So I think that probably the way to do that is we could either look at increasing the difficulty or that we could look at upgrading. What do you think is the best option there? They could both work. Um, if if you were forcing them to use the appropriate skill for the spell, mm-hmm. so to go back to our example, you have you have a, an arcane mage that's trying to cast heal, and you force him to use divine, then I think increasing the difficulty is straight out. That's a no-go, no way, no how, right. because their pool's already going to be ridiculously low. Right. All right? right. In, in, compa- in comparison. <laughs> but even if you allow them to use arcane, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a little too limiting. Heroic abilities are supposed to be big damn hero abilities, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like the idea of upgrading because it, it does increase the difficulty slightly. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. and not, not, not increase in a mechanical sense. I mean, like, it, it might get harder because you're going to have more negative symbols on them <laughs> dice. Okay. Right. You know, a few more. Mm-hmm. You know, you're gonna have four more faces, basically. <laughs> um, um, you know, on, on on that on that extra on that red die. Yeah. But I really like the idea that if you're going outside your comfort zone, you're gonna run a stronger risk. You, this is something you're not normally trained in. It's not something you normally deal with. Therefore, the the option of ro- the, the the chance of rolling more threat or more despair is going to be more present for you. Yep. And I really like how that can be represented with upgrades. Mm. Okay. So thus far, we've basically said that they can use whichever skill that they want to use. It will be upgraded. We'll talk about how we're going to do that in a tech. 
And we've talked about that they would gain access to a chosen spell rather than a different skill set. Um, that yes. we're basically looking at just you have access to a spell. Okay. So how about if we upgrade it twice initially? And then as we step through to an improved and a supreme version, that we might step that down a bit. What do you think? Ooh, I like that. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. Yeah, I think we should do that. Also, you know, if we're talking about base and improved and supreme, mm-hmm. I-, I think w- w- with the base ability, we should limit them to a single spell type. Right. Yep. So, yeah, so it's like, it's like yeah, okay, so, so for the base ability, it's like, it's like, pick one spell type, one spell type that you just can't normally cast, because it's, it's not, you're, you're, you're you know, the, the, the mag, you just don't have that ranks and that magic skill, or mm-hmm. it's not on your career list, yep. okay, yep. whatever it is, you know, pick, pick that spell, and while this heroic ability is active, you can cast it using whatever magic skill you want, mm-hmm. But yeah, it gets upgraded twice. And then if we're going into improved and supreme, I think not only should it reduce difficulty, it should unlock another spell. Yep. That sounds good. I like it. So so for our base ability, we have you choose one spell um, that you can't currently use. The difficulty to use it is going to be upgraded twice. And, uh, you know, they can use whatever magic skill that they want to use. And the other thing that we have to really kind of put that limiter there, because we're talking about upgrades, and obviously if you've, for whatever reason, you've managed to get all reds in the difficulty pool, we need to say that the difficulty of the spell must conform to the standard casting rules. In other words, it can't go over five difficulty dice. So I think that's an interesting base. And then we've talked about that for the improved and the supreme that you get a second spell choice um, so that by the time that you've got to supreme, you've got three additional spells that you can cast that you would normally not be able to cast. That works really, really well for me. And I think that to add to that, that in the improved version, that when they choose their second spell, the upgrade goes down to one for the first spell that they've chosen, but it still remains at two for the second. And then the supreme, you'd keep going down the, the, the track so that the first spell that you chose, it doesn't have any upgrades at all. The second one has one upgrade and the third one has two upgrades. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I I really I really do like this, mm. um, and because I'm thinking about it, like, and as you as you start earning XP and you're getting more and more, and you start unlocking, you know, improved and supreme, <laughs> and you're you're getting better and better and better. Yeah, yeah, man, I I I really really do like that. Mm. I mean, obviously, that's just us, you know, spitballing it. Um, but uh, look, if, if you've got any feedback for us, let us know. Um, it will be in the uh, the document that you can download from the Forge Genesis website. Use it at your table. Let us know how it works. I can also see this working really well with the the upgrades as well. So, like to empower allies, for example. So this uh, for that upgrade. Uh, while the ability is active, allies within short range add a boost die to their skill checks. So if you've got something like Enhance, you've just given them an extra boost die. So um, that's, that sort of stuff is absolutely fantastic as well. So, uh, But again, yeah, yeah. we've got that limitation that it can only be used once, maybe twice, um, depending on you know how many ability points. And remembering, if you're looking at that for the frequency... And it only lasts until the end of your next turn, unless you have the duration ability. 
But if you just have, if you've gone all the way up to Supreme, okay, so the base ability and then 50 XP will get you to Improved, 150 will get you to Supreme because it goes up to two to get the, the mm-hmm. final level. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's 150 XP. And then you've got Frequency, you're talking 250 XP because it's a two ability point cost. So 250 XP is a lot of XP. Um, that's, an ex- so, that's an experienced character. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah. Hopefully, um, if you haven't seen or, or heard about anything with regards to heroic abilities, that um, this has certainly enticed you into uh, the, uh, the, this wondrous thing uh, that uh, I absolutely love, and uh, yeah, you know, create some of your own, make them available uh, to uh, on our Facebook page as well, or any of our social media, um, and yeah, get it out there. Let's let's see what it's like. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very cool, very cool, very cool. All right, Huli, this has been fun, but mm. I am so jonesing for what we're about to talk about. I think it's time that we grab that trowel. Mix up the fertilizer and prep our soil. And let's let's get a little tree huggy. Let's plant some trees in the furnace. The furnace. And welcome to the furnace, the segment where we take a deep dive into a topic concerning custom creations using the Genesis roleplay game. Now, since the release of the expanded player's guide, us Genesis fans have been geeking out over the introduction of the specializations tree. Uh, which were obviously first introduced in the Star Wars role-playing game, also from Fantasy Flight Games. That's right. In fact, when Genesis first released, a lot of old-school FFG stars were, Star Wars players were quite vocal about missing their beloved talent trees, <laughs> um, as obviously the core rules for Genesis presented a much more flexible and, and freeform uh, talent pyramid structure. Yeah. Um, bottom line, though, is that the, the introduction of using the core rulebook method, the the pyramid, or the specialization trees in the EPG has now given any player or GM the tools to run it exactly as they want to. Exactly. But this leaves us with a bit of a quandary, as the Genesis core rulebook did an amazing job of pulling back the curtain on the narrative dice mechanic core rules, letting GMs in one into one of their secrets of, I guess, of how to mechanically design and create balanced careers, talents, skills, threats, equipment, and so much more. And while the Specialization Trees chapter on page 102 of the Expanded Player's Guide provides the same guidance, so much of it is more art than science. More practical than descriptive, as such, a lot of GMs and designers out there are still struggling with the best way to design their own specialization trees. So we decided it would be best to devote an episode to this topic, and we are going to talk about building specialization trees tonight, folks. Why you should do it, how you should do it, what it brings to your games. But to do that real justice, we realized that we needed another voice, (laughs) another brain, a true expert on the matter. And as such, we are proud to welcome back to the show, Sam Gregor Stewart. Lead designer on the EPG, Genesis Core, and with a heaping host of design credits of Star Wars as well. Who better to impart true developer wisdom to this task of tasks? So, <laughs> Sam, welcome back to the show, bud. Well, thank you, guys. It's uh, great to be on. Great to talk to you both again. Mm, so good to have you back in after you gave us a little bit of assistance 
in the last episode. It was absolutely fantastic. So thanks for that. And welcome back. Ah, thanks. Good to talk to you, man. How are you doing, man? Are you handling COVID okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not too badly. Mostly staying at home, working on uh, some freelance projects here and there, adapting to uh, life as a uh, freelance editor and writer. And uh, now I get to experience uh, the other side of working with uh, freelance editors. And it's a very humbling experience. I I have no doubt. But listen, man, we're we're thrilled that you were able to join us for this because this is obviously a topic that you know extremely uh, uh, extreme amount about. Um, and we were we were very eager to to glean glean kind of your your inputs and and your your wisdom. Um, and for for the listeners, this is going to be a bit of a non standard segment for us. We have some very rough show notes, but very intentionally, we really wanted to keep this a lot more conversational mm. and really kind of glean Sam's wisdom and, and really kind of walk through, maybe ask you some questions and really get your advice. And hopefully, if you're willing, Sam, we would love to maybe even build a specialization tree live on the air with you. I think that sounds like a great idea. Awesome sauce. Very cool. <laughs> All right. So probably the, the first question that we have to start off with, Chris and Sam, is why use specialization trees instead of the the core rulebook talent progression that we've kind of become used to with Genesis? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a good question, and um, it is one that uh, we talk about a little bit in the uh, the expanded players guide. And I think there's a few reasons why you'd want to use uh, specializations um, instead of the uh, talent pyramid. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I also think the talent pyramid is a good way to do things. Otherwise we wouldn't have done it to begin with, (laughs) but they each have trade-offs. So the first thing is um, specializations do give you a little more of a, uh, of a theme to um, they allow you to further build themes in your uh, character creation for the people familiar with the star Wars uh, role-playing game. The careers are all very broad and then the specializations let you uh, really narrow things down. I mean, just taking uh, force and destiny, for example, each of the careers has one lightsaber style associated with it. And if you play a career with, and then focus on that lightsaber fighting style, your character is going to be very different than if you mm-hmm. focus mm-hmm. on anything else. Very good point. In that case, also, the lightsaber styles almost make a uh, um, the specialization into a like a training regime for your fighting skill, while another specialization may define more about what your character actually does. And that's an interesting distinction that I think comes into play when we specifically talk about career specs versus role specs in Genesis. And but but we'll we'll as I often say we'll we'll come to that. <laughs> um, yes. One of the other things uh, I I wanted to ask about is I was one of the people that I mean and listen this is this is me you're talking about here uh-huh. okay when it comes to the Star Wars role playing game I'm a pretty big fan. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no. Having said that, when I read the talent pyramid, uh, you know, progression schema in Genesis, I literally had a moment where I sat back and I put the book down and I went, you know, I like it better. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that I felt that way was specifically because I felt it was a little less limiting. Mm. But as I've gone through and I've played game after game after game of Genesis, Genesis, and I've run campaigns, and we've been using the standard talent progression. I'm also also finding that, especially this is especially true with certain players, that level of limitation 
is sometimes warranted. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Limitation is not always a negative. Is doing necessary limitation. Yes, I think uh, I think you've sort of uh, hit it exactly there. Limiting a player's options can be good, and it can also create interesting choices. Um, there are there are some people who have a hard time looking at any kind of mechanical choices and not saying to themselves, "Why would I choose X when Y is better?" Especially if you um, if you tend to play very similar characters or anything like that then then yeah you you may often find yourself choosing the same talents um i'm sure for example that most that a lot of people who play uh genesis will pick up at least one level of toughened at the uh, bottom level because why wouldn't you um <laughs> get your character a little tougher and the same with grit right right, right. Mm-hmm. Yep. so yeah it totally makes sense that by uh, creating a special, if you create a specialization tree, and you give some other great things in there, but you know you take out some of the talents that are maybe like go-to talents for most people, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes people uh, think about it, and yeah, have to uh, have to agonize over their decisions a little bit more. And sometimes agonizing over decisions a little bit is actually like a good way to in- be, engage your players and have mm-hmm. them have more fun. Yeah, and that is also true when we talk about the the theme of a campaign or or a setting. Now, this is something that hasn't been done uh, in any sort of product on the Foundry, to my knowledge anyway, where specialization trees uh, provide a, a theme not just for the function of that specialization, but the overall theme of the campaign and the setting. Yeah, that is that is very true, and it's... Uh it also, if you're creating different specializations, you're basically creating another um, choice point that further differentiates the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of characters choosing a career to differentiate them from other characters and an archetype, now they're choosing a career, an archetype, and at least one starting specialization to mm-hmm. differentiate themselves. The more choice points you create, the less likely it is that characters are going to be similar, especially if specializations limit who can access certain talents. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things you said a moment ago that really resonated with me was the idea of, of forcing those interactions you know, the players have to make agonizing over those, those just which, which, which way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that agony is much less there with the pyramid because it is free form. You can do what you want, but I've, I've played star Wars enough to be able to, be, to remember those moments where it's like, Oh God, Oh God, do I go down this path or this path? <laughs> um, and, and you can, you can even create a single tree as we often saw with star Wars, where you can have radically different characters using the same specialization they've just chosen different routes on that tree yes that is very true and it also allows you to uh to weight talents differently so you can uh on one specialization you can um, make what would normally be a more expensive talent cheaper and on another specialization you can do the exact opposite you know maybe on that specialization you do have access to toughened, but you're going to have to pay like 15, 20 experience for it, mm-hmm. which is not the normal experience for people. Yeah. Right. Because there's a good example of that in, uh, in Gambler from, uh, I think, it, well, which one is it, Chris? The, the one that they did for Smugglers. 
Um, yeah, fly casual. Yeah. Fly casual. Uh, that Gambler basically had this really good talent. I can't remember what it is, but it was only like a second tier talent. But you had to go all the way down the bottom of the tree and come all the way back up again. Um, yeah, it, was, so, it, was, it was, well, first of all, two. They had, a gambler had dedication as a second tier talent. Right. Yes. But you, you literally had to go to the bottom of the tree, go all the way over through four 25 XP talents, <laughs> then go all the way back up to tier two and then over to get dedication. Um, the talent you're thinking of is supreme double or nothing. Yes. 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 Yeah. The, the, uh, I'm not sure it even counts as a lower tier talent if you have to uh, spend uh, 150 to 200 XP to buy it at that point. But then again, when we were uh, doing Star Wars, uh, um, the concept of talents occupying certain tiers, I mean, it sort of existed, but it was much more nebulous. Right. And you know, the, and the other thing too, and, and this kind of goes back to some of the things you were saying with, you know, why do you use specialization trees as opposed to the talent pyramid? There's benefits to both, but... One of the things you mentioned was allowing access to higher tier talents more quickly. Mm-hmm. Because you know, in with with the talent pyramid, if I want to get a tier five talent, I have to spend 150 XP in talents to be able to unlock a tier five talent. Right. Okay, yeah. and that's that's assuming a f- five tier ones and then a straight pyramid up. I would not. Well, I as we'll probably come to. Well, I wouldn't recommend ever building a specialization this way. If you <laughs> if you do your connectors, your links straight down, you could get to a tier five talent with only fifty XP spent. You know. Yeah. Yep. Seventy five total once you pay for the X ex- for the last talent for, the, for that last talent. Yep. Yep. Um, but of course, with the specialization, you control what that last talent is. So it may be a tier five talent but it may not be the tier five talent you know it may not be dedication for example right dedication may be buried on the the end of this curve that you have to spend 200 xp to get to Mm. (laughs) which also may encourage people to take uh, other tier five talents going back to that whole concept of uh, sometimes there are talents that are just better and that is one thing i i certainly noticed in uh, genesis is that it's hard to convince somebody not to take dedication at least once as the first thing they take. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. We've, we've talked about what benefits specialization trees can provide and why you might want to use them. Let's, let's get into how you can use them because, and I'm not talking about creating them, but I'm still talking about the fundamentals of how, because the, the book kind of talks about this a little bit, but there's different ways you can implement them. And, can we talk for a brief bit about career specializations versus role specializations? And I think there's some analogy, uh, some analogous uh, spec behavior in Star Wars, but we could talk about that. I mean, <laughs> can, can you can you explain that to us and kind of what the, what the differences are? Yeah, of course. Um, so, like you pointed out, career specializations is basically how the Star Wars system works. Hmm. When you choose a career in Genesis and in Star Wars, you pick a career, and that's your career. Never, uh, never shall you uh, visit revisit that choice again. <laughs> but uh, once you pick that career, you unlock a certain number of specializations that are linked to that career. And the idea is that uh, each of those um, specializations is a particular facet of that career. There's an example in the book that works pretty well, and I've got it right in front of me. A soldier might have the mechanized combat specialization, the commando specialization, or the officer specialization. And all of those specializations are aspects of being a soldier, but uh, they're very different 
particular jobs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the talents reflect that. And this system also, as with Star Wars, has you gaining additional career skills for the specialization you choose. Mm-hmm. Now, again, as with Star Wars, you can buy into a specialization that is out of career, or at least there's nothing there's certainly not nothing stopping you from doing this. And uh, you'll need those uh, you'll need those career skills, but it also generally just makes people feel like they have more career skill options and their characters a little bit better at what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So that's career specializations. Role specializations try to uh, sort of s- split the difference between um, the Star Wars approach and the Genesis talent pyramid a little bit, which is they open up your choices a little bit more. They also try and keep careers important because with career specializations, the careers are important because that basically determines which specializations it's easy for you to get to. With role specializations, the specializations are not linked to careers in any way. They simply are um, representing um, different, well, roles, basically, that a character may play. The healer, the con artist, the uh, tank. You probably wouldn't want to call it tank, but, you know. <laughs> the, the tank. If, we, if, if I'm doing a Tannhauser setting, totally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the tank, the DPS, the, uh, <laughs> the leader. And the idea being that uh, even if you're a, your career is wizard, maybe you want to build a wizard who tanks damage um, in the front lines, and you go into both of these. I mean, maybe that's a really terrible idea, but you could do it. <laughs> you could have a battle wizard or something like that. I think that that sounds fine. Battle mage. Battle mage. <laughs> um, well, Sam, oh. you, you you talk about this, and mm-hmm. I, I keep thinking, again, if we're drawing the analogy to Star Wars, I keep thinking about universal specializations. Mm, that's basically what these are. The only the only other difference is there aren't any uh, career skills tie- tied to role specializations. And that's just, again, to keep careers feeling like they provide something. Mm. So in this one... Careers provide your career skills, specializations provide your talents, and the two do not intersect. It also means that if with role specializations, you do want to watch out a little bit when you're using them because you may end up taking a role specialization that requires you to have your character to invest in certain skills, Mm -hmm. and you may not be able to invest in those cheaply. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can shoot yourself in the foot. Mm -hmm. So as as a designer and a GM... Would you recommend that if you if so, let's say you've made the decision to use specialization trees instead of the pyramid, mm-hmm. would you recommend one or the other? So you either need to go career specs or you need to go role specs, or can a, a good setting or a good GM allow for both in their game? Well, I mean, a good uh, a good GM can certainly uh, pull off just about anything, um, <laughs> and. Like you pointed okay, out. What, okay, what about a bad GM? Should a bad GM, <laughs> should a bad GM allow for both in their game? I would definitely recommend uh, choosing one or the other, um, especially if uh, you're not uh, entirely uh, confident in either yourself or your players, or you're just starting out trying this. Uh, you can mix the two. Star Wars does it, as you pointed out, with universal specializations and regular career specializations. Yeah. You, I think your life will be um, your life will be easier if you just pick one or the other. Um, especially because uh, if you commit yourself to too much, um, you're going to be building a lot of specializations for your game. And uh, trust me when I say, from personal experience, <laughs> uh, 
building um, 18 to 20, uh, 21 specializations is actually a ton of work. <laughs> yeah. How many have you designed or at least taken part in now? <laughs> Let's see. Two core books. That's 36, 37, 38. There's a lot. I think like. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's got to be um, it's over fifty, probably yeah. less than a hundred specializations, but it's definitely over fifty. Wow. Um, yeah, there. I mean, hell, I got to a point where I couldn't, uh, um, <clears throat> where I just couldn't do them anymore. Um, <laughs> I was really glad for some of the other designers because I was just out of ideas. <laughs> see, and now we see why you came up with the talent pyramid for the coral because literally, there's this little there's this little guy in the back of your brain saying, "I'm never building another specialization tree again." <laughs> that is definitely part of it. Um, I, w- I will also say, with um, and something that people should keep in mind when they're using specializations is specializations are real estate intensive. Um, They require a lot of work to invent. They require a lot of testing. And if, for example, you're writing a book, you need to commit a lot of pages to uh, take them up. Mm. So that may have been another reason why we uh, didn't want to do specialization in the Genesis core, especially in a uh, universe, a book that's supposed to be universal role-playing. And specializations, kind of by their nature, are pretty setting-specific. That makes sense. Yep. So, Sam, how many specializations should you have in, you know, have for career versus um, role if you've decided on either of these two? So, you want to have enough that um, the choice is interesting. So, for career specializations, again, like you see in Star Wars, I fell, um, I fall back on the uh, rule of three pretty quickly. Every career you invent should have three specializations. Um, there can be some overlap. In fact, we did that a little bit in Star Wars. Occasionally, two careers would share specializations, although yep. Yep. we tr- try not to do it in the same game line. In, yeah, but <laughs> but uh, so you can you can cheat a little bit, but uh, you should expect to do a uh, uh, I would say count on about three specializations at least per career, mm-hmm. and that might encourage you to be uh, judicious in how many careers you decide to go with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With role specializations, you don't have to do quite as many. Well, so you don't have to do quite as many, but you also may find yourself having to do a lot more than you expect. Um, because anyone can pick any role specialization. So on the one hand, you know, if, if you had six careers and you had um, six specializations, that means your starting options before you start taking more specializations, still 36 starting options. Sounds pretty good. But then you remember that all of those specializations are the only way you get talents. And you're probably going to get your players coming to you and being like, hey, but I kind of wanted to play this thing instead. And none of your six specializations let me do that. (laughs) So you're probably going to be doing a lot more than six specializations, even if you do roles. Yeah. Man, let me, let me tell you this. As a GM who's GM so much Star Wars and so much Genesis, <laughs> you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. <laughs> if you have a game with specialization trees, you're going to have players that complain to you that there's not a specialization that gives them the talents they want to have for their concept. Right. If you use the talent pyramid, you will have players complain to you that it's too freeform and they need something a little more... 
thematic. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're building your own specializations, your players are going to um, say, well, why can't you just make exactly what I want you to? <laughs> of, co- of course. Of course. Yeah. Why isn't dedication a tier one talent? Why? <laughs> you have the power, GM. Give it to me. Uh, no player is ever satisfied. Um, <laughs> that's all that says. <laughs> um, one of the things that, that Chris sort of just touched base on before, and it might sort of get into more about the, you know, the creating of the specialization trees. But one of the things that uh, that Chris mentioned was this this whole creation of two, maybe sometimes three different types of of characters in the one tree. The best example that I can I can think of that I was involved in the playtest of was the uh, the clone pilot. So one half of it is very much more about piloting, and the other half is very much more about gunnery, um, and sort of like fitting that jump into the uh, the gunnery seat of whatever vehicle that they're using. So is that sort of something that when you were first developing uh, specialization trees and, and things like that, is that, was that something that you intended to do or was that just something that you found that that was just a natural progression of what, you were, uh, what your methodology was? Yeah, I think that was always something we were um, aware of. Um, I mean – Specialization trees are not a unique conce- concept to uh, the narrative dice system in any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Um, and uh, honestly, like um, I was thinking about, uh, I, honestly, I was thinking about a lot of video games mm. when I uh, when I was working on those back in the day with uh, Jay, um, and also a lot of. Uh, one of them was uh, World of Warcraft, of all things. Right. Um, this was early World of Warcraft, where choices were hard and uh, grinding experience was uh, was a lengthy pros- prospect. Mm. Not the easy World of Warcraft kids these days have, but uh, <laughs> still, um, I you know I remember how you would have uh, you would have your shaman, for example, and um, as you invested. I don't even remember what the points were called were called back then, but uh, mm. whatever points that gave you unlocked your abilities, you know, as you would um, you would spec into uh, certain uh, types of shaman, and uh, if you uh, if you made the wrong choices, then uh, wrong choices, you know, your your character may not be able to do stuff really well, uh, and if you did the right ones, your character would have these really great synergies, but would it be a very different character mm. just because of their abilities, and so. You know, that concept of your choices um, leading to creating very different characters, I think that's been in the idea of gaming and specialization, as long as there have been specialization trees. Right, right. Very good. So I guess it boils down to how we go about putting all of that into a tree to make it a little bit more entertaining for the players and, and enticing to play. So let's talk about creating a specialization tree, you know, and it's really what people have come to to listen about, I guess. So <laughs> so <laughs> yes. let's talk about the basics. So uh, with the tree construction, we've got 20 talents in the tree. Uh, we've got four tier ones and it goes down to, you know, the, the four tier twos, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to tier five. But you know that you've got these boxes, and that's all you've got. <laughs> so where do we go from there? 
So what you have, yeah, you have these uh, 20 blank boxes. And um, in some ways, building specialization trees in Genesis is easier than building it in Star Wars um, because you have a little more guidance to go off of. In uh, Star Wars, um, for example, we never actually codified talents as talents that have certain tiers um, or, you know, are higher or lower power. Um, I think every, um, everybody who's familiar with Genesis now thinks of uh, dedication as a tier five talent, for example, but in Star Wars, um, it was just a talent that uh, we always tried to make sure was pretty far away from uh, where people started. And there wasn't anything else, you know, there wasn't anything else to go on from there. Um, so first thing is your talents do have tiers now, and that provides a great reference for some suggestions on how powerful they are and where they should end up in your tree. Um, it also is a good guide point for how many talents you have in your tree, because you shouldn't, you shouldn't assume that you're going to design a tree with uh, four tier one talents, four tier two talents, four tier three talents, four tier four talents, and four tier five talents. Mm. You, you won't, uh, it won't be the pyramid style where um, five, four, three, two, one, but you should have less tier five talents in this tree and you should have more tier one talents right. uh, mm. and uh, generally take that approach. But it's a great place to start, and you know basically how uh, how powerful things are. So first, you know you have those talents. Second, um, a tree should have my rough guidance on that is, and the guidance we went with with Star Wars was 14 to 16 unique talents. There are 20 spots for talents, and so aim for 75% of those to be unique, which means you're going to have five repeats well four to six repeats mm. um and that's and that's where ranked talents come in mm. one of the reasons for this is that uh talents can get a little overwhelming it's one of the reasons why ranked talents exist so that uh, you don't have to remember a bunch of different talents you just know that if i have toughened five times then it's does this mm. uh, for example yeah so you definitely want ranked talents in your tree, and you want a mix of passive and active talents, too. Let's see. Other than that, um, there's some basics you should probably include in a lot of your t- um, in a lot of your trees. Um, toughened and or grit is one of those basics. I wouldn't say that you always have to include both. And in fact, um, that can be one of those interesting choices. Um, some specializations could have a lot of grit for example but no toughened maybe that's a social character mm. maybe and then uh, a combat focused character has a lot of toughened but no grit and it creates a weakness for that character but also a strength and then some um, specializations may not have a lot of either but they do have both and that makes a more all-rounded character mm. um finally a good rule of thumb especially as you're getting started um Make sure your dedication ends up in row five at the bottom. Um, again, it's very good, and uh, that's a talent that people are going to want. And you probably shouldn't have a straight line to the bottom for dedication either, unless uh, there is some sort of other trade-off involved. So yeah, so that's some of the basics of it. Um, yeah, a mix of passive and active talents, um, so that you don't have too many choices 
when using the talents for your to overwhelm your players. Toughened and or grit are um, good basics. Um, Fourteen to sixteen unique talents. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that covers a, a few of the like basic things you should be thinking about as you get into it. Mm. Okay. So when you've got those basics in mind and you've sort of picked out what your talents are, how do you go about the arduous task of arranging them correctly? Because that that exact arrangement, which is, and again, not, not to mention the pathways, which are also going to matter, I mean, has a lot to do with how much XP they're going to spend in order to get some of those higher tier talents or the more powerful talents. What rules uh, or, or tips can you give us when it comes to arranging these talents appropriately in the tree? Yeah, this is this is where it really starts getting into uh, the art of specialization, cre- um, tree creation, rather than the science. But you're right; there are a few things to keep in mind. Ranked talents, for example, don't create a path where somebody can just pick up three ranks of the uh, same talent one after the other boom 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 Hmm. unless you're doing it for a real specific reason i mean hell most most of the advice here has the caveat of unless you're doing it for a very specific reason (laughs) (laughs) but yes you shouldn't uh run your different your different talents in a in a row or the same talent in a row multiple times so that people can just uh rank up on a good talent and then be done in fact, the better a talent is, and better is sometimes subjective, but uh, you can usually figure out um, if you've played this game a bit and which talents are really good. The better a ranked talent is, the more it should be split up throughout the tree. Hmm. Enduring, for example, the talent that increases your soak by one, which, in my opinion, damn good talent <laughs> for a combat-focused character. Hmm. If you want to have two or three ranks of enduring on a talent tree, which is a lot. Um, (laughs) One of them should be on one side of the talent tree. The other should be on the other side of the talent tree, and there should be no easy way to get between them. So you have to spend a lot of XP to get both. Yep. Right. Let's see. Then um, when you're dealing with those ranked talents, again, keep in mind the tier that that talent exists on, and that is a good suggestion for where you should start. So talents like toughened or grit or let's ride or jump up okay those aren't ranked but toughened or grit or something like that yeah. probably should be higher up in the tree um in the high in the rows that's actually something that uh, gets tricky is that in specialization trees higher is cheaper because you start at the top and work down hmm. whereas in the pyramid you start at the bottom and work up yeah <laughs> anyway um <laughs> but yeah you want them higher up for the first time either row one or two but then remember just like in the talent pyramid that gets more expensive and they occupy a higher level as you go hmm. make sure you're you don't have four toughens up in row one where they are all cost five xp right. the next one should be further down and you should have to dig for it hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um another good uh, another common ranked one i think of is uh as i i was <clears throat> relating um on our last episode, I recently ran a, a session of, of uh, my Weird West Dusters and Dragons. And, uh, you know, when when creating the Gunslinger pregen, Quick Strike, another great mm. ranked talent that uh-huh. starts at Tier 1. But if you allow it to stack easily and they're able to nab multiple ranks quickly, that quickly becomes a extremely powerful character. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, people... Uh, 
Yeah, people don't appreciate, and just GMs especially don't appreciate when somebody's uh, taking uh, four or five boost dice on their first attack and just one shot in <laughs> their main villain. Yeah, no. What? That never, that never happens. <laughs> hey, I do have a question about one particular talent and how you would actually do it for your specialization tree. Knack mm-hmm. for it is one of my all-time favorite talents and should be on the first thing that anybody ever takes. It never happens that way, but that's just the way that it is. So how does that go where when it's actually placed on the tree itself? Yeah, so uh, I would place that pretty low. And actually, I think Nackford's also an interesting um, talent because that one was designed um, with the pyramid more specifically in mind mm. because it's... Starts out exactly. Uh, yep, it starts out affecting one um, skill, yeah. and then each subsequent uh, version affects two. Mm. Um, as long as you're using specialization trees, you may want to go back to sort of a older version of that, where uh, it every time you take it, it just affects one skill. Mm. Um, because I don't think you need necessarily the multiplicative version of it with knack for it. In the, if you go with that version, if you go where it, every rank just um, removes a uh, removes setback dice from one skill, then um, I would suggest doing um, keeping it fairly low in general. Actually, mm-hmm. if you have two or three of them, keeping them in the uh, first couple rows. Yeah. Now, as long as we're talking about knack for it, knack for it. One uh, other interesting thing about it is that. Um, Knack for it uh, was an evolution of a whole bunch of different talents in Star Wars mm. that were all specifically remove setback dice from this kind of check, remove setback dice from that kind of check. Yeah. I don't think you need to go back to that approach if you're going to use specialization trees, but one thing it did do was give even more flavor to a specific specialization tree yeah. that, unfortunately, Knack for it doesn't provide quite as well because knack for it is so general natural is the other one that's like that mm-hmm. in star wars natural would only let you it would be natural something and it would be re-roll these two specific checks and you could put it in a tree that was very thematically appropriate you know mm-hmm. natural um natural marksman would only you know would only go in combat focused shooting trees and natural pilot would only go in pilot focused trees so natural and that are kind of interesting that way Mm. um because the way that i thought that you could probably do it um is that you you mention exactly what skill it is that you want to put in those talents rather than leaving it up to the player that you be very very specific as to what um what skills that that do apply to the that particular talent if you wanted to get really sort of thematic with that particular um, tree. Mm, I like that idea. Um, You could even go one step further. If you want to still keep it general Mm. and not have a bunch of different knack for it's floating around, you could change it so that it's when you choose a skill, when you take a rank and you choose a skill, you can only choose career skills. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, w- I was going to suggest that as well. That's a, that's a, that's a good way to, to modify knack for it and keep it, keep it real basically mm. um and, and, and allow it to be multi-ranked at at higher up on the spec tree basically mm. um damn i wish i yeah. wish we had done that in uh, genesis from the get-go that's so. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, same thing for natural too. Yeah, make it uh, make it limited to career skills, and yeah. it uh, it at least those at least feel a little more specific to the uh, specializations and careers mm. that you're using. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I had a random question, an artifact that I'm all too familiar with from Star Wars when it comes to specialization trees. I'm curious to know if you have any guidelines that are on doing this in Genesis specialization trees when it comes to tier one talents or you know the the top tier okay Mm -hmm. we would often see instances where you had orphaned talents where they don't connect to anything Mm. ah yes and that would often happen if you're if we had choices at the beginning between a couple of talents so um those talking about um the setback removal talents people usually were less likely to take those than they were toppened or grit or something like that, for example. So sometimes we would, to create those uh, hard choices again, to create those more interesting choices, um, an easy way to make you think about that a little bit is put toughened or grit as a orphan talent, a talent that doesn't link up to anything. And then um, to actually get further into the tree, you have to take... uh, what the talent that maybe seems a little less desirable than that. Hmm. Now, the other side of that, that is um, you can also do that to create more of a theme to your character. Let's or specialization. If, for example, you have a uh, your gunslinger, and um, gunslingers tend to be all about quick shooting and quick reactions, but they're also they also were tough individuals. So you want some toughened in your uh, tree. You don't want it too far down. You want people to be able to buy up their wounds because they're going to be fighting. But you don't want it to be a real focus. That would be a good time for an orphan talent. Um, maybe one or two ranks of toughened are orphaned at the top, so they're easy to buy. But um, thematically, you have to buy quick quick strike for example um to steal back to your example um you have to buy quick strike and start becoming faster and better at that sort of thing before you can actually get into the real interesting stuff further down Mm, interesting one other question that i have about it um and i know this is a little bit off what notes we do have but is there sort of like a bit of a rule of thumb when it comes to a tree that may have a few talents within it that are powered by strain to limit the amount of grit that they have? Or should it be the other way around? That if you've got a a tree that has a lot of talents that are in there that does have that strain cost, that you should be putting in a lot more um, grit within the tree so that they can build up that and get used to their abilities and be able to perform their abilities a lot more easily rather than having to, to deal with that strain cost. Uh, the answer, I think, is yes. Right. Um, no, because, and that's the beauty and the peril of this uh, whole process. Um, because I don't think either of one of those is a bad option necessarily, and it depends on what you're going for. Mm. Um, your gunslinger character, maybe you don't want them to have a lot of grit, but they have a lot of um, strain activating talents because uh, their whole it is basically they are really awesome in the first round but then they've done everything they can do and they're exhausted um Mm. playing into that thematic idea of you know they draw first they shoot and then they have fired their wad um (laughs) and uh on the other hand um if you're making a um sort of a endurance warrior 
Um, or let's let's get out of fighting. You're making a negotiator. Right. You have a you might have a lot of talents that um, you require strain, but then they have a um, high strain threshold, or a lot of talents let them recover strain. And the idea being that uh, in social situations, they uh, they are going to be able to outlast their opponents because they can sit down at the negotiating table for hours on end. Mm. Right. So that basically boils down to it just just depends on what sort of theme you're going for in the specialization. Mm -hmm. Right. Makes sense. Mm. When should you place some talents higher or lower tier than normal? There may not be an easy answer to this question, and it may come back to theme, theme, theme. (laughs) But I think that's my final question when it comes to arranging talents in the tree, you know? Yeah. I mean theme is definitely the short answer well okay but there you can we can go a little further than that first um resist your impulse to put high tier talents further up in the tree so that they're cheaper um i'm not saying don't do it but i'm saying always think about it twice maybe before you do it because um if there's have, I've seen a lot of fan-created talent trees um, or specialization trees, and you know it's interesting to see them. And we've created a lot ourselves that then get play-tested. Mm. And an easy mistake to make is saying, oh, well, I've always wanted to be able to take this talent sooner. I'm just going to put it um, put it higher up in the tree so it's easier to take, because that's what I want. Mm. And unless you're balancing out that choice with something else that is a drawback of some sort, just giving somebody something for less without any trade-offs usually is not good character design. Um, It usually just means that they are going to have a character that is better than the other players' characters, and other players will just be like, why am I not doing the same thing they are? Because that seems to just be better. So... That's one piece of advice I'd say. Don't, uh, by default, don't assume that you're just going to take higher level talents and put them further down the tree to be easier to get. Yeah. Now, the caveat to that is, and as we get into pathways, um, that'll be um, something we talk about more, but you can use pathways to make something more expensive, even if it's um, higher up in your tree. Mm. And so... Don't think about where it's placed in the tree necessarily so much as what is the route it takes to get there and how much XP do you have to spend on that on the route. Yeah. So mm-hmm. now when you place a talent that's lower in the tree than normal, it's more expensive. I think there you are doing it because it is a talent that's very desirable and you feel it is important for that character to have access to it, but you want to remind your player that their character shouldn't necessarily be focusing on it. Mm-hmm. Again, with the uh, with the negotiator, you f- maybe you feel that it's important the negotiator be able to get toughened at some point, or you're in a setting that's very combat focused, and so you're like, yeah, your enduring is something that people need to get in my setting because everything's super deadly. Mm-hmm put it in the negotiator but put it further up or further down hmm. and then it'll still they still will not feel as combat capable as somebody who can get it sooner yeah mm, good advice mm. no i just also have one last question again moving off show notes with regards to working out what talents 
that you should have in the tree. So I know that we've, we've talked about um, that you should have between 14 to 16 unique talents. But what happens when you, you don't necessarily, and I'm sure that there are people out there, uh, that don't necessarily feel comfortable with designing their own talents. So they just want to use the talents from you know, the, the already existing sources, and that also includes some of the stuff that we see coming out of the foundry as well. How would you guys, for example, with Star Wars, how did you go about designing that tree in the first place? Did you sort of have a bit of a, um, you know, a killboard type thing up there with this is these are the, the talents that we want to have in the tree and then work out where those talents go in the tree and then you work out uh, the, the next part of the thing when we start talking about pathways? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up because this is important. Um, now, with Star Wars, unfor- unfortunately for our purposes, half the time we'd uh, design a specialization, there'd be a spot in the middle of it and be like, yeah, something sweet needs to go in there. And then we'd design something <laughs> sweet to go in there. But recognizing that that's not particularly helpful in this situation. Mm. I think generally, if especially if you're not designing your own talents, Start out by creating a list of talents that you think exemplify either the role or the specialization within a career that you're designing for. And that can be pretty that can be pretty easy, especially at first. Like so if you're making the pilot, look for talents that uh, make it um, give, make it easier to drive and or pilot vehicles. Um, thematic look for one like the name daring aviator um probably indicates that that should be in your pilot specialization for example a talent that messes around with the speed of vehicles same thing so go through your list of talents and pick out ones that are thematically appropriate Mm -hmm. next if you're not if you're wondering about mechanically effective talents another good place to start is Look for talents that when they call for skill checks or modify things based on ranks and skills or characteristics, mm-hmm. especially skills, look for um, ones that are messing around with the same skills that are career skills for your career. And this only works for the first option, um, not the role option. But uh, you for the role, if you're making role specializations, you can even think about some skills that are maybe appropriate for this role um, and just have like a mental list and then use that to ser- search for talents. Mm-hmm. And again, there's going to be some basic talents that um, tend to show up in a lot. Toughen, grit, dedication, second wind shows up in a lot. But when you when you know that these general talents show up in a lot of specializations, mm-hmm. they're just think about... If you have an idea of three or four talents that show up in a lot, oh, knack for it. Um, don't pick all of them. Pick a couple of them. Be like, this one's going to be focusing on grit. This specialization is going to be focusing on toughened. This is the generalist. It has everything. Hmm. This one I'm going to make knack for it happen four times because uh, an engineer feels like they should be better at that sort of thing. Right. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think that's a good place to start at least. Hmm. And also, if you're using specializations, um, make sure you have a list of all the talents that show up in your setting and make sure every one of those talents shows up in at least one specialization. Yeah. <laughs> mm, very <Word>. good <laughs> <laughs> That's not a mistake you want to make. <laughs> okay, so let, let's, let's move on to more mistakes you don't want to make. <laughs> let's talk about pretty much the last the, or, or penultimate step of creating a specialization tree, 
which is now that you've identified your talents and now that you kind of know what the general layout of them is going to be, making the pathways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so now, so so before you said, okay, this kind of shifts into art when you were talking about pick, you know, laying out your talents, this goes into the art. At this point, we've left science behind. We've gone into full-on art. I'm sitting here with, with like, you know, <laughs> I've got a color palette on one hand and brushes at the other. There's modeling clay behind me. We're talking serious art here. Hmm. When you are now connecting these talents and going from one to the other to the other, creating those pathways, what advice can you give us here? <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are there are a few sort of habits you can uh, follow when you're uh, creating your pathways or a few sort of processes. Um, the first one is less connections is better than more connections. Your pathways should never just be a grid because then why are you building a specialization tree? Right. Generally, try and aim for about two links from row to row. Some can be more, some can be less. You can, you know, these are just guidelines, but two is a good place to start. And Think about them as a tree, and this is this can be hard because it's um, it's a grid. But if you look at your specialization, what you can do is create these branching paths that come off of a main trunk or trunks, and that's a good way to start. Like a lot of our early specializations sort of followed that process. So you'll have these dead end pathways that come off of a main path that leads down to the bottom. And each of those dead end pathways can focus on a different sub aspect of the specialization. The pilot may have a one that goes to gunnery, one that goes to speed, one that goes to being sweet with pistols, because we all know that all pilots are good with pistols for some reason (laughs) Um, and so forth and so on. And then um, at the bottom, maybe it branches out into the tier five. And once you get to tier five you can just loiter around in tier five buying stuff that's a good that's a good initial approach another good initial approach is the two halves approach where if you have a specialization that you feel like focuses on two separate things the sheen's shien specialization in star wars because uh shien is this weird lightsaber form of combat that uh gets into two very different um like aspects of it um there's a schizophrenic specialization. Um, it, that specialization tree is split in half, basically. Once you start down one side, you cannot get over to the other side, um, and vice versa. So what you're and saying is, once you start down that path, forever, forever it will dominate your destiny. <laughs> yes. Until you start at the beginning and go down the other side. <laughs> but it's a good... Yeah. God. Consume you at will, <laughs> as it did Obi Wan's apprentice. But Star Wars references aside, um, and I totally deserve that. Um, it is a uh, that is another approach you can take. Another approach is the uh, top bottom split, where maybe your the top half, the cheap talents, focus on one aspect of a uh, character, and then the bottom half. Uh, focuses on a completely different aspect. You might use that when your your specialization, the idea is you have to train in some basic stuff, maybe like it's a martial artist specialization and you have to practice like basic punching before you get down to like the sweet super five-finger death punch and the hyper throw or whatever. And so 
you have a lot of connections at the top, but then only one way to get down into the bottom. And you probably pick a talent that you have to go through that you feel is super thematic and everyone should take this talent if they're doing the specialization. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And that's sense. something else we haven't talked about. It's okay to be like, look, I want to provide options, but this talent or these couple talents are like mandatory. You got to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's part of the specialization tree is you are you are taking some choice away from your players and saying some things are things you have to do, which if you don't mind me uh, rolling into something else, gets into this concept of like p- that people refer to the XP tax. Right. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yes. So the uh, infamous XP tax, which is also slang for uh, Huli's favorite talent, often <laughs> refers to talents that remove setback dice, but also there are some other talents. They're either talents that players may not particularly want or they're, they're low-tier talents that are located where they actually cost a lot in the tree. Mm. So spending 20 to 25 XP for jump up, for example. And they're called a tax because uh, presumably behind those talents in a path where you can't get to it is some better talent that you can only get to by purchasing that's um, less, than, less than ideal talent. Mm. Right. Yeah. So that's the XP tax. Um, And doing some of that is not bad. You don't want to do it too much. But I'm very much of the opinion that doing a little bit of that um, in a a specialization tree can make that specialization tree um, more interesting. Or at the very least, it can make it more balanced. And sometimes you really want to put a super powerful talent in a tree but you just can't justify making it really accessible and a XP tax um, blocking uh, getting to it is just the only way to uh, make you feel like you can sleep at night. (laughs) Now, that being said, you don't want to do too much of it. Um, The last thing you want to do is go from hard choice to frustration. So keep in mind the quote unquote value of every talent. The tier system does sort of determine that and you should not be uh, ignoring that you should be still using that as your guideline for how much you think something should cost yeah interesting now sam how do you avoid creating trees that are going to be way overpowered <laughs> that's tricky uh good play <laughs> testing is a uh is uh, the best way to avoid overpowered trees. Yeah, yeah. But assuming that you don't have just you don't have reams of play testers standing by to uh, test your stuff, mm. or you want to do your best possible work beforehand, mm. one thing is again we talked about this earlier. Don't expect to be putting lots of high tier talents into your um, tree. Mm. You should still have more tier one talents and less tier five talents. That's a good way to avoid things being super OP. Mm -hmm. Another thing is, and this you get when you play the game more, there are talents that combo really well together. A few of those in a tree makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. But if you're making the badass fighter tree, for example, don't make a tr- make a, a specialization tree that's all the damage increasing talents and then also all of the damage resilience talents and uh, maybe 
a few like move faster talents just to top it off. Yeah. Like, you, you know, don't feel like you're giving a player everything they want. Ideally, your players should always be, at the very least, you should feel like when you hand this to your player, they're going to say, oh, I really wish it had this. Mm. And then you know you've at least in the right direction. Yeah. I'm making notes right now. Badass <laughs> warrior specialization. <laughs> it's super boring. <laughs> but Sam, that's where you'd basically go, right, well, that particular talent that they really want, you would potentially put that in another tree for that career so that at least you're then enticing them over into another tree, right? That's a good point. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Put sweet talents in different role in different specializations mm-hmm. that talents that pair really well together or talents that are really popular mm-hmm. and remind people that they can just take a second specialization. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help because it's going to mean that your characters um basically have to be a much higher level and a much higher competency before they get the ridiculous combos. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So, Sam, we've been talking for a little over an hour at this point, and I want to be respectful of your time. Um, and I'd like to leave us a little time to maybe spend 15 minutes or so taking our own stab at creating a tree. Um, so one final crunchy question for you. Yes. Testing your tree. Yeah. Honestly, this is where playtesters are essentially vital because the best way to test your tree is to make sure somebody who isn't you looks at it (laughs) you're going to have a lot of preconceived notions and a lot of opinions which is what helped you create the tree in the first place but somebody else is going to be using it so you need somebody else to look at it so the best thing you can do get together a group of people first hand them all the specializations and see what people pick and then ask them why did you pick this and not this why and go through that you may make a lot of changes based on that feedback alone. Secondly, play some games. Uh, give them a lot of XP quickly so they can burn through that tree quickly. But play games, see what their paths are. Yeah. Um, after every session, see what the next thing they buy is. And I'm talking like give them like 50, 60, 75 XP per session yeah. so that you can actually test it in a reasonable amount of time. Mm. But definitely... You just gotta you just gotta test it and you gotta let other people make choices in your trees and then ask them why they made those choices. Because mm. I know that when we did uh, notice integrations, uh, that we just went to town on it because it was something mm-hmm. that we absolutely loved. But I was giving we only had because you only have a, a certain amount of time for a play test and you've got to give your your feedback and whatever else. And we had, I think it worked out to be five sessions of the game that we could test this in. And we wanted to test as much as possible. So what we did is we just gave 75 XP to for every session. And that sort of just, it, it almost gave it a movie feel. You know, like when you first see a film, they start off there a little bit sort of meh. And then by the end of the film, they're doing epic things. And that's a sort of, that's, that's kind of how it felt when we did this test of, of uh, notice integrations. And it was a fairly good story too, I think. But that's a way that you can accelerate people through the process so that then they can really even start to do things right. Well, I'm going to go and choose another tree from another book to see how that links in as well. And, uh, yeah, that was an interesting process. So, uh, so yeah, highly recommend doing that 
And as we always say between Chris and I, playtest, playtest, playtest is going to be the most important thing, but probably more so when it comes to trees. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And if you don't have time to playtest like actual sessions, at the very least, get somebody to build a character with it and give them more XP, make, let them make choices. Playtesting, uh, Playtesting is important, but it doesn't have to be a uh, it doesn't have to be a like full on campaign. Mm. So mm. you can uh, you can speed you can speed things up, and that's fine yep. if, if your players are fine with that. Mm. Absolutely, they loved it. Mm-hmm. So, very good. All right, so that's pretty much a, a pretty good idea as to how to go about creating the specialization tree. But what I think would be a lot more fun would be to actually do a tree live on the air. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Let's <laughs> let's do this thing. Because <laughs> it, it, honestly, it, it's best to put our advice that we, we've provided so far over the, the last hour by creating a new tree. So we have to consider all of the topics um, that we've uh, we've discussed and we'll, we'll do it sort of in a bit of a step-by-step process. Um, so I, I guess the first question is with step one, are we going to do a, a, a career or are we going to do a role? I think we should, uh, well, let's do a roll. Okay. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I really want to do something magic related. We've had a lot of magic discussion on the show recently. Mm. And if I can make a proposition, Mm -hmm. if you guys are cool with it, I have been fascinated with, uh, first of all, one of my favorite specs in Terranoth is is the Primalist. Okay. Right. Yep. But um, one of my favorite careers. But ever since Huli, you made your when we were doing species creation, yep. you made your your Torin Minotaur. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> I have I have wanted to make a druid. Ah, very cool. I nice. like this idea. Yes, yep. I I like that as well because uh, druids are one of those traditionally one of those spellcasters that feel like they could be doing a lot of different stuff. Um, so. I feel like uh, that's a good role specialization because you could be a druid who's a warrior druid or you could be a druid who's a wandering survivor druid mm-hmm. or a healer druid. Yeah. Cool. Let's do this. Let's do it. Okay. So how do we want to proceed here, guys? If we're going to if we're going to start with this, hmm. I mean, do we want to do we want to first lay out our talents and sort of define what we're going to use, I guess? I think that's a good idea. Yeah. A list of uh, a list of basic ta- um, talents that we think fit mm. in the uh, tree. Because one of the things that I was going to suggest earlier is that you know if people are designing these things and they've got a little bit of space to to play with, is that they can put all of the talents that they think would be appropriate just on a little card or, or you know around about the same size, and then start laying them out and work out you know which ones are tier one, three, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they can start to move them into place to see whether they fit into that sort of form. So I think knowing what those I, talents are going to be, it's great. So sticky sticky notes on a wall is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Love it. All right. So what uh, what talents do we feel like would fit well into a druid? Um, so I think for this, let's uh, let's agree that we'll just use the core rulebook mm-hmm. and the expanded player's guide yep. because uh, that way we won't uh, delve too deeply into various uh, setting books. Because <laughs> yeah, you could go completely nuts with Terranoth. So I agree. Oh, yeah. <laughs> not, to, not to mention all the foundry stuff out oh, there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. no kidding. <laughs> so let's go through this list really quick. Forager. 
makes a lot of sense. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, it does. I like yeah. So so yeah, if we're if we're starting tier one, I really like Forager. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I feel like one with nature has Whoa. to almost has to be in there just because of the name. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I'm trying to remind myself that's the one where you can use survival to recover strain at the end of an encounter instead Correct. of cooler discipline. Yeah, exactly. Mm. That's gonna feel that feels pretty druidy to me. Yep. I, I I I would I would agree. Um, okay, so before we get into some rank stuff, because I know that's there's a lot of tier one there. One of the things, and you, you guys can argue with me if you want. Maybe we include it. Maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, a druid is a is somebody who typically has an animal companion, typically something they can often ride. What do you think about a riding specific talent like Let's Ride? Hmm, that's interesting. That that is interesting. Um, and I think that's an that's a case of like different um, approaches to how you see a druid. Like yeah. I've always seen druids as um, spellcasters who transform into animals and don't ride them. But mm. uh, at the same time, this is a, that's personal opinion. So mm. I'm, okay. willing to, I'm willing to say that if, is this maybe more of a low magic druid than maybe, uh, maybe uh, riding animals makes a lot of sense. Mm. Okay. Well, let's keep it on the maybe list. Let's keep it on the maybe yeah. list. Sure. Because I think that probably during this process um, that we should sort of have the the whole brainstorming um, mentality that we basically just make, make some quick suggestions without sort of like, otherwise we'll be here for hours. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, just go, right, point. this is what we want to do. So Totally, totally, totally. Well, okay then. So keeping it with tier ones, what are some other good suggestions? Uh, well, um, Sam, you mentioned it before that we really do need to have a bit of grit and a bit of toughen in there as well. I know that they're ranked, uh, but um, you know, definitely something like that. Um, so we we need that, and of course, we have to have at least one knack for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't be satisfied if we didn't. No, correct. Um, <laughs> I think that um, we need at least some of those for sure. Yeah. So the, here's a. Here's an interesting question. Um, mm. To me, the druids always felt like a spellcaster who's a little more of an all-rounder, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. whereas like wizards are um, wizards are more frail and clerics are hardier and with plate armor and so forth. So maybe this one has grit and toughen, but not a whole lot of either. Mm. Yeah, yep. yeah, I'm I'm down with that. Yep. What else is there? That's more sort of nature related. Uh, we've said let's ride. What about Swift? Second Wind. Second Wind's another good one. Yep. We could do Second Wind. Um, I mean, so Second Wind, uh, good way to recover strain, good mm-hmm. for a caster. I would say if we're doing Second Wind, we do less. It's great. Mm. It, yeah. Or you're going to want at least like two ranks of Second Wind, though, because one rank of Second Wind just feels. Yeah, and and now that we're talking about this, um, I, I don't know. I want, I want, I think I want to veto second wind because if we're going to do grit, I'd rather do more ranks of grit. Cool, let's do that then. Okay, okay. Now, Huli, you did you mentioned Swift? Yeah, I mean that that makes sense to me to, for to, to to a certain degree. I mean, you know, you, you know, the idea of there's a lot of difficult terrain in mm. in natural settings. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yep. And the druid is that person who can like you know skillfully just navigate that. Yeah, definitely. That's yeah. sort of the direction uh, I was going, for sure. Makes a lot of sense. So that's uh, six tier one talents so far, mm-hmm. if we do Swift. Yeah, let, and let's, yeah, well, let's ditch Let's Ride. Let's ditch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So we haven't done any magic talents yet. So let me ask you guys your opinion. 
do you feel like ensorcelled is better for a uh, druid? The um, narrative um, generates like some sort of weird magic-y effect um, around them and boosts social encounters? Or do you feel elementalist is better for a druid? That sort of depends yeah. on what sort of a druid you're going for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, I mean, man, it, the the thing is though, elementalist is limited to attack, and I know that, but I don't know. In my maybe it's my my years of D anD D training, I just so rarely associate druids with magical attacks. You know, hmm. fair point. Then I think ensorcelled is probably a better choice. Yeah. yeah, I think component casting definitely feels like something for a proper wizard wizard. So, yeah. oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Definitely. I like ensorcelled because also when I think of druids, they typically have this ethereal aura about them mm-hmm. that that sets them apart from the normals of the world. Yeah. And that's to me that's always what ensorcelled represented. So I really mm-hmm. like that. Cool. Let's do ensorcelled then. Okay. So that's tier 1. We've got a list. Yep. What are we thinking about tier two talents? If we're going to go in sorcelled, we really have to go in sorcelled improved, right? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah, I think I think if you're going to do one, doing up to improved is a uh, good choice. Yeah. Let's see. I'll be I'll be honest. I don't know of a whole lot of other tier two talents that really jump out for me, and maybe that's fine because we have a lot of rank talents in this. Mm-hmm. We do, and so I mean, we, at this point, we got seven tier ones, and we've only got four tier one spots. So we know at least three of them are going to be, or, or ranks of them are going to be moved further down in the in the spectre. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, yeah, let's do ensorcelled and then uh, move on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tier three, uh, well. <laughs> Animal Companion's an obvious one, and so is Druid. <laughs> a- Animal Companion's obvious. Druid is obvious. There, there's also Ensorcelled Supreme that may be going too far. I don't know if you necessarily need that, but you got to have Face of the Wild. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's that's classic Druid, and, and that's the talent where when you, when you cast Transform on yourself, you can pop a story point, and it lasts all encounter. Mm. Oh, yeah. 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 So, it's got to be Face of the Wild. I'm going to suggest... And what do, I want to know what you think, Huli, that we don't do in Sorcelled Supreme because um, maybe it's a little more, maybe their stuff's a little more uh, uh, subtle. Yeah, I agree. Um, and we can always put that in a different tree, like what we talked about before, uh, that, uh, you know, you need to go and uh, dip into another sort of uh, tree before you could get that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking that's a good idea. So yeah, that's a good point. And uh, maybe another tree has all three, and that makes that tree more interesting. Yeah, the ensorcelled tree. Mm. Uh, let's see. Um, what do you guys think about natural? We talked about it earlier, and we so far the only generalists like non because you, you don't want to go. You don't. You never go full druid, right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to go full druid. Um, you know, we've got tough, and we got knack for it, and grit, obviously. Um, even Swift is a little generalist, but what about natural? I mean, it's that good all-purpose re-roll talent, you know? Mm, yeah, I'm I'm certainly fine with it. It's gonna be uh, it's gonna be really good when you're casting spells, but maybe that's okay. Mm, I mean, I forgot. Yeah, natural works with 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 magic and combat too, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It does. It's once per you know, it's it's, it's only once uh, per session thing. Though, so. Sorry. Yeah, why not? Let's uh, keep it in there at least for now. Maybe we move it up to a higher tier on the tree. Yep, uh-huh. that's another that's option. Compromise. Mm. Okay, what about? Okay, so now let's get into the high tiers. What about tier four and five? I mean, at this point, we've 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 picked out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve unique talents. We know we're going to have a couple ranks extra of 
grit and toughen, no doubt. So we're cresting up on 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 some talents here. We 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 need to we need to probably pick maybe you know four or five more. Well, not four or five more, maybe uh, three or four more. Mm. True. Yeah. True. Yeah. If we want to stay at uh, sixteen or lower, and so now the choices get real hard. Um, <laughs> let's try. My suggestion would be try for let's try for three because we have a few we have a few pretty important rank talents here. Yeah, we do. Um, and I know Huli wants to get five ranks of uh, Nackford. <laughs> no, that's just silly talk, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tier four. En- yeah, uh, enduring is a good one, but maybe we don't need it. I mean, I yeah. like enduring. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a good general talent that could work. Honestly, considering that we're going to be limiting it to just maybe adding three more talents, I, there's a couple. There's a couple that we know we need for tier five that I know. Hmm. So, what about is what about masterful casting? We are talking about a caster here. Yep, that is very good and uh, proved to be very useful, um, <laughs> especially with. Uh, let me see, transform. Well, Transform actually doesn't need it so much, but uh, attack spells would need it. Um, Heal spells would need it. Yeah. um, And augment spells would need it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My my, my brain went to augment specifically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Let's do Masterful Casting. Okay. And then uh, Dedication is is one of those that's almost a given in every uh, tree. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, at this point, uh, with Star Wars um, out there, um, unless you have something like Force Rating, uh, you need to have dedication. Yeah. So, well, talking about uh, obvious ones, uh, Dire Animal Companion. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you, you got. You got to. You got <laughs> yeah. to. <laughs> and and then I reckon that I'm just looking at the uh, the core rules. I think that. We've really got maybe one choice, and that would be master, mm-hmm. which you know that that's going to give you. You just choose the one skill, whether we make it sort of that it's only in the tree, um, that's only in the in the well, career list or something like that. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, listen, with what we've got so far, mm. without master, we've got fifteen unique talents. Yeah, I think that's going to be enough. Yeah, actually, you know, for another reason, too, I'm going to suggest we don't do it. I would say that we would do either do Master or Natural, but not both. Uh, True. I would agree with that. Yep. You so could, let's, yeah, mm. let's do Natural. Because you could basically okay. use both of those in the one hit. That's a nasty combo. Oh, <laughs> uh. Okay, so we've, we've selected now Forager, One with Nature, Grit, Toughened, Knack for It, Swift, mm. and Ensorcelled. Mm-hmm. We have Ensorcelled Improved, Animal Companion, Natural, Druid, Face of the Wild, Masterful Casting, Dedication, and Dire Animal Companion. Yeah. That's 15 unique talents, which gives us five additional ranks that we can apply to our duplicatives, which are Grit and Toughened, mm-hmm. and Knack for it, potentially. Yeah. Yep. And uh, six of those are Magic Talents, which feels pretty good for a Druid. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Additionally, we've got a really good mix of both active and passive talents here. Yeah, we do. That is nice. And uh, we've guaranteed that our druid is going to get plenty of chances to turn into animals and or have animal friends. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love the animal friends. <laughs> um, so 
now we have the tree itself and maybe the first thing we can do is um figure out roughly where we want to put stuff on the tree and then we can talk about and as we go we can talk about pathways but bottom bottom end uh forager forager i feel like pretty much needs to be a tier one um it's yeah. It's not bad, but it's uh, not amazing. People probably won't spend 10 XP for it. I, I would agree. Um, and we also talked about that if you have grit or toughen, those should also be tier ones, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then uh, and then that's three out of uh, four at the bottom and four just thematic. You know, why not put grit and toughened on opposite sides of the tree? Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's not too much to choose from, but... and. Talking about paths, maybe a forager is one of our gates into the uh, lower parts of the tree. Yep. Maybe I like that. Oh, how about um, forager and... All right, Huli, where do you want your uh, next it? <laughs> one or two? It needs to be at the top. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's put it at the top. Let's do forager and knack for it, yep. but those are the only two ones that have paths going down. Yep. I like that. I like that. So grit and toughened are maybe they'll. I mean, yeah, they're basically basically orphaned. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. We'll orphan those two. All right. So that's our first rank, and I'm gonna mark off the ones that we've put at least once into our tree so that yep. we uh, recognize it. Now, one of the things that I'd recommend because I've seen it in play, and it's it's amazing if you've got someone who does have the 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 survival skill and they've got it up the wazoo, um, is One With Nature. And I think that One With Nature is a direct follow-on from Forager. Mm, I like it. Yeah. And they don't um, – it doesn't create a uh, – it doesn't create a, like, bad stacking combo. It's just thematically very, very yeah, appropriate. exactly. Absolutely. You put it on the same side of the uh, tree that uh, the orphan grit is, and then it's even more thematic. Mm, exactly. You've almost got you. You've got this survivalist thing happening on the the left hand side, um, and then you've got the more specialist one happening on the right hand side. Mm. Oh, okay. This is I like this. So left. Yeah. So left hand's going to be more survivalist. Right hand maybe ends up being a little more magical. Yeah. Yeah. I like yep. it. Yeah. I like yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So we've got one with nature. The only ones we haven't done are ensorcelled and swift. But I feel like Ensorcelled could actually end up further down. I think that's important for a druid, but like that's a druid who's come into their own power a little bit more. I agree. I agree. And you know what? I'm gonna since this is a you know we don't we don't necessarily have to do this talent by talent. I'm gonna make a I'm gonna make a statement. You guys tell me if I'm nuts. Sure. Mm. I think because this is a druid character, mm-hmm. I think that either druid or face of the wild should be higher than tier three. Yes. Love it. Yep. In fact, maybe, let's see, yeah, Druid should be Tier 2, for yep. sure. Yeah, Druid should definitely. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, but the thing is, we've got, we've got Toughened on the right-hand side, far right. And for those of you, you know, we haven't said this yet. Obviously, guys, we're, we have this tree fully up, and obviously you can, you can take a look at it in our, our downloadable notes section on resources yep. at ForgeGenesis.com, so you guys can follow along as we're talking about this. Mm. Do we want to put uh, Druid under the Orphan Toughened, or do you want to make it really easy to get to by putting it under Knack for it? Let's make it. Let's make it easy to get to. Mm. Let's. Okay. That that is the that is the specialization. Mm. Now, what you could do is, what if we created a little side branch off the side of Druid, and okay. that's where we put 
either ensorcelled and improved ensorcelled. Ooh. Yes. Directly underneath. So they have to go down that way. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then we make that its own little branch that uh, doesn't link to anything else. And we create one of those little side branches. Ooh. Ooh, I really, really like that. That's cool. So, because not everyone may want to play a druid who constantly emanates a uh, otherworldly power. Yeah. Maybe that's not the druid you're really into. Mm. Now, where should we put Face the Wild, do you think? It could be a level three, but it could be under one with nature or druid. You know what? Let's come back to Face of the Wild. All right. I'm looking at the left-hand side of the tree, and I'm seeing it's a little bare. And if we're talking about magic use on the right-hand side of the tree and the more naturalist on the other side of the tree, mm-hmm. I'm thinking animal companion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a tier three talent can yep. maybe move up to tier two, um, jutting off of one with nature. Oh, I like that. Because Animal Companion and Druid are, even though they do similar things, they're not the same talent. Very different. Mm. Yeah. See, I would I would say something a little bit different to that. I would have suggested that Swift happens before Animal Companion, and then Animal Companion comes down as a T3, directly you know, a below idea. it. Because, you know, if we want to look at it thematically, they have to learn how to find their animal companion. And then they find their animal companion. I, I can go with that. How about in that case, um, as we build this tree out, um, the swift animal companion row is going to link all is going to link further down than our little ensorcelled branch at uh, on the other side. Yep. I like it. And that'll make it more appealing. Mm. But we haven't done any ranks of other stuff, so that's a True. good th- of talent. So that's a good thing to think of. What if we put a grit after one with nature as yes. a tier three talent? Yep, total ma- makes total sense. Cool. So that's our uh, grit um, strain side of things. <laughs> so we could put uh, face of the wild right after druid. It's yeah, it, it's all it's on the nose, but maybe it needs to be. <laughs> I agree. And at mm. this point, I'm almost thinking, like, should we have any, ca- like, well, 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 okay, one, w- so right now we have this left-hand track and we have this right-hand track. Should mm-hmm. they be connected at any point? I mean, they, they should they should be connected at some point, I would hope, but they, they could just be, I go back to the top and take another tier one. Well, what if they're connected near the bottom? That's you, what I'm yeah. thinking. Yeah. yeah, so the idea, yeah, you go either a more natural focus or a more magic focus, but in the end, you are... One way or the other, you're all the same druid. Yeah. Cool. Okay, wow. Well, we have eight talent slots remaining. Four, only four unique talents left. Natural, Masterful Casting, Dedication, and Dire Animal Companion. Mm-hmm. Well, Dire Animal Companion should probably... Let's see. That's a tier five, um, but... Uh, that could be. I could see that a tier as a tier five. That is maybe a tier four. We mm. could uh, put that under animal companion, yep. or maybe tier four next to animal companion, one row over. That's that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, make it just a little harder to get to. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So All the right. question is, do we then have that link between grit as tier three and the dire animal companion, or do we remove that link so that they have to sort of like veer right off the page to sort of go down that animal companion route and then go across to um, dire animal companions. Yeah, let's do that, actually. I think that's kind of interesting. 
Also, it uh, makes things a little more idiot-proof for um, players so they don't buy diuranical animal companion and then realize they can't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's very true. It's very true. And also, I like a a certain amount of asymmetry in talent trees if I... uh, um, I mean, not always, but uh, Mm. sometimes it's kind of (laughs) nice. So that's dire animal companion. We still could have another rank of knack for it or toughened. I, you know, that makes sense. In fact, I, I'm thinking there's this empty spot on the fourth row on the left below Animal Companion and and to the left of Dire Animal Companion. Mm-hmm. It's got tough and written all over it, <laughs> in my mm-hmm. opinion. Yeah, it, 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 re- it really does. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It really does. It, it makes perfect sense because you've got to be a little bit more tough to be able to get your to to capture your Dire Animal Companion. So yeah, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> so that to me makes more sense. <laughs> so that's two ranks of toughened and two ranks of grit. That's pretty good. Mm. That is that um, is that is pretty good. And I, I I like the fact that the grit and toughened are on the non magic side of things. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. that that makes that makes good sense. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, we have okay. So we have natural masterful casting and dedication. Mm. I would like to recommend. This is kind of strange. Masterful casting is a very powerful talent. It is. Do we want to keep it at tier four, or do we maybe want to pump it down to tier five? It's, it's still easier to get to overall. I, yeah. So if we were making this as a part of a setting, presumably masterful casting might be more thematically appropriate early access for like a super wizard who's all about just the casting mm-hmm. so yeah let's make it harder to get to we could even make it a tier five talent that's off a little bit um like you like uh maybe you go from face of the wild down to something and you have to go over and it's off on its own thing yeah i really i really like that cool and if we're really worried about it being super good which it is real good. <laughs> we could even, uh, we could even maybe that side of the uh, um, side of it gets gated a little bit by our second knack for it. Uh, face the wild and then knack for it below it. Great mm-hmm. idea. Yep. Yay! I've got a second one. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, somewhere a uh, whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of Star Wars RPG fans cried out in anger <laughs> as a as a setback removal talent ended up, ended up in tier four yet again. <laughs> uh, uh, well, it's okay. It's a second rank, right? Mm-hmm. So you're getting you're getting two two yeah. skills that applies exactly. to it. Yeah. right. <laughs> At least you um, get to these ones. <laughs> okay, the we've we still got four open spots and two uniques, which are natural and dedication. Yep. Yep. So let's see. I would say dedication needs to go on the other side of masterful casting, like yeah. other I side. Agree. Of three. Yeah. yeah, I agree completely. Because you're, you're dedicating yourself to your pet. Yes, I agree. Um, <laughs> and if we're uh, and if we're looking to make this talent tree feel a bit more uh, focused on the animal companion stuff and the transforming stuff, we could actually break the link between toughened and dedication tier yep. four and five there. Mm-hmm. So. Masterful casting and dedication are ones you have to uh, sort of work your way around to get to. Absolutely. I like that. I like that a lot. Hmm. Then we could put natural. We could actually put natural right next to dedication if we want. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And if we keep a bottom tier link, uh, you know, uh, horizontally over, it's not too out of the way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
I think that's fine. So now we just have two spaces left for two winning talents. I mean, we could potentially, I suppose, go back one, ta- um, pick up a talent that uh, we've we uh, discarded originally. But I don't think tier five is a good place for Let's Ride. No, I, I don't think so. What about uh, you know, you know what? And and the thing is, I want to keep it somewhat natural. Mm-hmm. Maybe we bring in Ensorcelled Supreme. I I know it's a tier three in the book, but we could make it a tier four or five in this tree. Oh, interesting. If we put it under masterful casting, then if you but we've broken the link between Ensorcelled Improved and Ensorcelled Supreme. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot to get it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well okay, well then 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 how about this? How about we change that link? How about we have a straight path for Ensorcelled, Ensorcelled Supreme, and Ensorcelled Supreme? Okay. Oh, and then master and then and, the, and then we break we break the link between Supreme and Masterful Casting. Yep. Yep. Okay. So if you want to go magic, you're you're actually like you'll get masterful cast and you'll get sorcelled supreme, but you're giving up um playing a lot of other druidy stuff. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Cool. That's a that's a good thought. I like that. That leaves us with one tier five talent. Yep. Mm. Um let's see. We could do um, we have two toughens. We have two grits. We could do a third grit. We could. It, we could. Now the way we've set this up, though, um, nobody's going to take it if it's uh, grit or toughened, um, <laughs> just because you can work your way around it and get better talents. Sure. This is very true. This is very true. So you'd probably use that point. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you were to design your own talent. Oh yeah, and I mean, and this is where your own talents for your own se- your own setting is going to yeah. come into play, obviously. But if we're yep. limiting ourselves to just the core books mm. and the EPG, yep. you know, if I, if I take a look, you know what? I have a weird suggestion, and it wasn't even <laughs> on our list before. Right, it is indomitable. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. No, so, I like that. So think, think about this. You've gone knack for it, druid, face of the wild, and knack for it after that, okay? So this little side section of the tree is all about transformation Mm -hmm. from self-transformation. What more better way to represent that than indomitable, where literally you go down, but you you are able to, through the use of a story point, magically mend your wounds temporarily to where you are still up, even when you otherwise wouldn't be. Yes, I like that. And... uh... You very well might be going down too, because uh, well, yeah, all, all the strain you're burning up too. Wow. Yeah. So mm. yeah. If again, if we are making our setting, the druid might be noted for having indomitable as a ma- as a magic caster, and none of the other magic ones have that ability. Yeah. I like that. Yep. Just thinking about it as a um, uh, as a power gaming now for a moment. <laughs> When it comes to Indomitable, if you are a druid and you had something similar to uh, Shapeshifter from not in this tree, but if, if you were had another tree that you were connected to and it had Shapeshifter in it, you could be activating your Indomitable if you got to zero strain, still be operating as normal, and then you activate the talent, which basically says as soon as you hit zero in one of the, uh, I think it's zero strain, you change and then you recover all of your strain Mm. that's interesting well so luckily (laughs) luckily at least with transform uh that's not a problem no that's right uh, yeah if you would have been incapacitated you transform back and then you um and then if you're still incapacitated you're sorry if you wouldn't be incapacitated now yeah you're not yeah so luckily it it doesn't get too weird with the interactions yeah 
but you are burning a ton of strain just being a caster. Oh, yeah, so absolutely. you might knock yourself out by casting too many spells and be able to continue casting too many spells. Yeah. I don't know about shape <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, if you were as confused by that conversation because we're describing <laughs> it, um, instead of looking at the diagram that we were all sharing together, we again would encourage you to please go to ForgeGenesis.com, head to the resources check section, take a look at the document for today's show, and you can see this talent tree. And guys, we're going to publish this up there, and the next step, the next step, the next step, Sam, is of course playtest? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I would love to hear what people think of it. Yeah. And now that we created a druid, it's up to y'all to uh, create a uh, wizard mm-hmm. and a cleric. <laughs> yes. Yes. Done and done. <laughs> well, Sam, this has been an incredibly enlightening discussion. Thank you so much for coming back on the show and taking the time to talk to us about this. This is super fun, guys. And uh, honestly, I feel suddenly interested in specialization trees again <laughs> for the first time since uh, we finished Force and Destiny. Perfect. <laughs> well, then oh, it's a great. double win. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks, Sam. It's been so much fun. Thanks, guys. Yeah, this has been great. And yeah, it's always a pleasure. Definitely a pleasure this time. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs> Well, that was an amazing discussion with Sam. And as Chris mentioned, you can download the tree we just created from the Forge website at forgegenesis.com. And uh, as we also said, uh, let us know what you think. Uh, For now, though, I think it's time to chat to one of the Foundry contributors about their amazing new product on Breaking the Mold. Done and done. Breaking the Mold. The Genesis Foundry is an exciting community of fan-created content for Genesis. New settings, new rules options, adventure and campaign modules, and much, much more. But some creators go above and beyond, subverting our expectations and breaking the mold with their work. Our regular Breaking the Mold segment is dedicated to showcasing an exciting offering available right now in the Genesis Foundry as we separate the pure alloy from the slag and point you to the best content out there. Now, tonight's guest is the mind behind the Survivalist Guide to Survival. Great title. Um, from the B-Movie Gaming Studio. Uh, it's a trap focus setting supplement currently available on the Genesis Foundry. This 17-page guide provides a heap of content for setting and using traps in your Genesis games with a lot of fun content. Now, this includes new tools, new talents, a new archetype, and wonderful rules and GM's tools for making the most out of traps. Not to mention some quite hilariously awesome stats and art for Beast of Legend, those savvy trappers may encounter. We found this product to be a cut above the normal folks, and not just in being well-written and well-designed, but also, frankly, in its versatility. And from my point of view, most importantly, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek humor. (laughs) So we would very much like to welcome the mind behind the Survivalist Guide to Survival to join us for the very first time, Mr. Caleb Smith. Caleb, welcome to the show, man. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. So glad you're here, man. So glad you're here. So I really want to talk about the Survivalist Guide to Survival <laughs> uh, because it's a lot of fun. But but honestly, you know, it, 
first of all, I mean, obviously, many of our listeners are probably hearing you and, and meeting you for the very first time. So I'd love it, man, if you could take a few minutes, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your gaming career. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'm uh, born and raised in L.A. area. Uh, lumberjack, kind of, by trade. I trim trees, I like to tell people that. <laughs> uh, love gaming, all different kinds. As for my career, uh, I think it would be kind of limited compared to a lot uh, in the community because I grew up playing more video games and you know, Pokemon, Nintendo stuff, Kingdom Hearts, and those kinds of RPGs. But uh, most notably, I loved Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic, mm-hmm. and which I didn't realize at the time was based off of the D20 system. Yep. But, yeah, which was, uh, I just loved how that whole game worked. But my <laughs> first uh, tabletop RPG experience was with uh, Wizards of the Coast uh, D20 Star Wars system when I was about 17. A friend of mine brought me to his gaming group, and I was immediately hooked. And then he explained it was basically the real-life version of KOTOR's system, <laughs> and um, I was so excited to play and had a really good time. And even back then, looking back now, um, I didn't obviously know what a narrative dice system was then, but I realized I tried to really inject a lot of narrative aspects into the way that I played and would try to use it like you would in Genesis. But uh, that wasn't always easy to do in that binary D20 system. (laughs) But still fun, played a little bit, uh, GM'd a little bit, but kind of got away from it. But then in 2016 was when I discovered FFG Star Wars mm. and got back into tabletop gaming, uh, devoured the Auto 66 podcast, got my books and grouped together, mostly GM'd, played a little bit. Mostly right now I have a ongoing play-by-post game over Discord that I've been GMing for Star Wars going over two years. Whoa! Uh, it's been wow. awesome. The secret is to play with friends because <laughs> people yeah. you find online is not always the easiest to keep together for that long of a time mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been fun uh genesis has been a little bit more slow me getting into uh my star wars group wanted to stick with star wars which is cool but through the community primarily the discord um genesis community i've been able to you know educate myself on there on there and uh have a good time getting to some some games through that so i guess i'd be somewhat of a rookie when it comes to tabletop rpgs well, you can't tell that from from your product, but we'll 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 come to that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I would well, agree. Whole th- absolutely. Um, so, look, this is a question that we basically ask all of our guests. So, what style of game or game setting or theme do you really like to get on the table when you play? Now, you've mentioned Star Wars that you know you have a a crew that you're already playing with. Um, but in your perfect world, what would you like to get on the table? So what's your favorite thing to play in Genesis, in other words? Uh, well, yeah, like you said, Star Wars is the easy answer. It's because <laughs> of how big the galaxy is, how great it is to live out your own fandom. Yeah. But um, I think I narrowed it down to three main themes. Uh, I love a good questing adventurer, like an Indiana Jones-type mystery to solve. And I've noticed that I tend to direct my Star Wars games towards that style of play. Uh, (laughs) I love heists, either throwing them at my players or pulling one off myself. Uh, I'm still waiting for a better mind than my own to put an Ocean's Eleven-style setting on the foundry. And uh, I think third, the best way to describe it, this theme would be, quote-unquote, undercover. Something like the thrill and the danger of uh, being a thing that is not allowed to exist in the world that you're in. Like, Mm. for example going back to Star Wars, playing a Jedi in the Empire. And uh, this is a theme that um, that I want to try and develop in an upcoming setting that I'm working on. Nice. Ooh. Well, maybe we can, t- maybe we can, we can talk about that. But um, 
dude. And, and honestly, when you talk about how what you like to play, how you like to play, the things that intrigue you, I'm 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 smelling what you're stepping in, man. I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm picking up I'm picking up what you're putting down. All right, I'm 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 with you 100. Yep. percent Um, and honestly, that flavor and style is represented quite clearly when you read through the survivalist guide to survival. So let's talk about it, Caleb. Give us give us the pitch. Tell us about this supplement. How would you describe it to someone who's looking to purchase it? Well, the survivalist guide to survival is the perfect guide for anyone who wants to use the cunning to the fullest to outwit and outmaneuver their opponents and has a focus on setting traps and will uh, guide and help players and game masters to add a tricky element to the table. You can channel your inner Ewok, wild man, huntsman, uh, use traps to ensnare prey, crush them with logs, poison them before they even realize it, and uh, to become a true survivalist is a new archetype that uh, that I have that focuses on skills and the cunning characteristic, and uh, to use new talents and tools to make your traps better, um, and as GM, to use Beast of Legend to give your players a hunt that they'll never forget. <laughs> I always need to get uh, in contact with my inner Ewok. There's no two ways about that. Uh, that's awesome. And, and I know that uh, I was involved a little bit in the playtest uh, with this as well. And, uh, yeah, I've, I loved every minute of, of everything that you, you brought to the table, Caleb. It was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Um, now, the, the Survivalist Guide to Survival, um, I can't say that title enough, I don't think. Um, it's a very focused supplement that fleshes out um, an aspect of, of fantasy roleplay many consider to be crucial but doesn't get a lot of, of detail in, in the core rules or anywhere else in any of the, the, uh, the additional supplements. So what can you tell us about your impetus to, to craft this in the, in the first place? Why traps? Well, as I mentioned before, I usually am the GM, um, especially in Star Wars games. Mm. But when I do get to play, I notice that I uh, have a tendency to go towards a survivalist type character, or at least a cunning focused character. Mm. And I've always had the urge to do something tricky with my character. And uh, for some reason, inexplicable draw towards wanting to try and use a survival skill to solve everything. <laughs> uh, but that led me to the idea uh to flesh out these rules for setting traps. And then also around the time that the Foundry came out and I discovered this podcast, uh, I was also listening to the Tarkin audiobook. And it turns out that before becoming a Grand Moff, Tarkin was something of a survivalist himself. So the stars aligned to give me the inspiration for this. <laughs> <laughs> very, very cool. That surprised the heck out of me with the Tark with Tarkin book as well, because this is that's not what I expected. I expected him to be some blue blooded, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was good. If you if listeners haven't read that, it's fantastic. You should read it definitely. And the audiobook quality is great too. Oh god, they've done such a good job with the with the Star Wars audiobooks overall. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. So oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely love it. Um, yeah, I love I love the focus on cunning now. As a result of that, though, when we get into this supplement's, you know, roughly 17 pages, you've you've got several rule sections that go far beyond mere stats for traps, which you obviously have. But what can you tell us overall about the development process for this? How did you how did you know what you wanted to include? And also, as a follow up to that, what did the playtesting process look like for this? Well, when I first had the idea, I was thinking more of a full-on survivalist skill guide and going into more detail of hunting, gathering herbs, dressing kills, and stuff like that. I'm really glad I did not go in that direction for two reasons. 
one, I personally have no hunting experience, and it's really not that much of an interest to, to me anyway. But secondly, and most notably, uh, Guillaume's skill guide came out, which covers all of that stuff beautifully. Yeah. So I'm really glad that I uh, that my guide came out more as a complement alongside his instead of like a rival uh, rule set in that area. Mm-hmm. And then um, some other things, it's funny, as a kid, I would go camping all the time and would try and catch groundhogs by digging little holes in the ground and covering it with sticks and leaves waiting for them to fall in it never worked out but i thought that hey maybe i can accomplish in genesis what i've always failed at as a child (laughs) and then (laughs) so going along with that i thought if i were to set a trap what uh what would i do how would i do it and i just thought of the different kind of traps that i've seen in different types of media like you know the aforementioned ewoks and the logs and really drawing inspiration from anywhere and then as to them uh, coming up with the mechanics, I did consider using uh, Genesis magic rules as a base, uh, you know, where they have the menu to choose the options and then increase the difficulty to reflect that. But I wasn't really crazy about that idea. So I looked towards the uh, crafting rules, both from Star Wars and Terranoff, because I really liked the concept that you don't know exactly what you're going to get when you make a trap. <laughs> and of course, you have the base trap set. But then advantage and threat from your roles can totally change the outcome, either for better or for worse. Mm. And then the uh, playtesting was something that was really daunting to me um, because my only group, my group played Star Wars and um, I didn't really have too many local people that, uh, that I can get together with. But the community really came through. I put a call out on Facebook, uh, the Facebook group and in Discord, and great people stepped up to assist me. Uh, Huli, like you mentioned, you really helped straighten out a lot of my ideas for talents and some other mm-hmm. things on Facebook and in Discord. And then I started a server on Discord that um, I could help uh, go over my work and ideas with those brave enough to join it, <laughs> being able to run some play-by-post encounters to test out things and get feedback, and uh, even was able to control my Star Wars group into putting a little Genesis time in with uh, with some of the encounters that I ran. Nice. But I wanted to give a huge thanks to Giri Raman, Raman, also known as Arkelis on yep. Discord. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. Uh, <laughs> David Morris, Tyler Comstock, Christopher Ruthenbeck, uh, all these guys answered my call for playtesters and proofreaders. And without them and this community, I don't think that the survivalist guide to survival would be anything like it is now. Mm. So if anyone out there feels like they don't have a good group, uh, to playtest or help with your project, there are some awesome individuals out there in this community that will step up. So don't give up hope. That is true. That is very, very true. One question that I that I just want to sort of like add to that is that out of all of the stuff that you did with the playtesting, what was probably the one thing that you really got out of it more than anything else? Like what was the one thing that you learned? I guess different approaches to how one might plan on using the skills so like some of the options for the traps or other things that they can do so hey like what if i wanted to try and use it in this way i'm like oh i don't have an option for that like disarming the trap for example i mean that's mentioned in the skills itself in the core rule book Mm -hmm. in some things but um having some more fleshed out rules for that really helped uh, people looking at it from a different direction Mm -hmm. so it's good to give me more of a you know 360 view on instead of my head-on approach Awesome, because I know that we talk about playtesting all the time on the show, um, and it's just interesting to to hear from someone who's been down the the path of playtesting uh, and they've never really done it before. So uh, to, to 
to find out what you've learned from that, that's something that, that certainly you can pass on to, uh, to other people who may be trying to create products themselves. So, uh, so that's great. Now, can you give us a, a glimpse of something exciting or unique in the Survivalist Guide to Survival to, you know, to whet our appetite a bit and um, you know, perhaps also share with us your favorite thing in the supplement? Yeah, for sure. Um, one thing that I, uh, one of my favorite traps that I put in was the beehive trap, which was inspired by the awesome cover out courtesy of Dean Spencer on the found, um, drive through RPG.com. Yeah. Um, but the beehive trap is a formidable check to set, uh, lots of room for things to go badly there. <laughs> and, um, if someone triggers it, then it drops a beehive on their head, causing them to suffer strain for multiple rounds. And I just love the imagery of that. <laughs> <laughs> but with that specifically, this isn't necessarily a fantasy-focused document. Um, I don't have like a whole lot of experience with fantasy anyway, but there's just kind of seen with Chaps, that's the easiest way to go with it. But I wanted to sure, sure. that it was, uh, even though the Chaps had different names or specific names, that they can still have a, you know, a narrative reskin in any situation or any setting. Just like the magic system will show the thing is might be called lightning when you want to stun them, but it can be anything that the player can imagine. Yeah. And that's why I was hoping that the traps function that way as well. And then also the, uh, <laughs> well, I think one of my favorite things from the supplement was, um, the, the had the most fun was, was the beast of legends and uh, <laughs> <laughs> the little tidbits of the story, making the adventure and the encounter suggestions. And to be honest, a huge inspiration from that part was on the Auto 66 podcast, the SWRPG of the week segments. And just imagining those uh, suggestions read in that old-timey newsreel voice like Chris <laughs> always did. <laughs> imagination. Uh, that's awesome. It came out of the woods, a jackalope. It was there. <laughs> exactly. Fast as lightning, twice as mean. Um, uh, yeah, dude, I'm, 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 I'm all on board. I, I almost peed myself when I read your entry for Jackalope, man. It was like it was like and just a little bit like you know those unfor- you know if, if the jackalope ca- catches a scent of whiskey it drives it into a frenzy basically <laughs> and it and I mean um and, and just the, the and the art the jackalope art of this this vile creature trying to gore, gore this man is just incredible I was I was wetting myself I I um I sincerely hope like like I want to see a cryptid beast guide okay where you've got all the all the weird and unusual creatures from you know american or even global you know unusual arcana you know art you know history you know historiana kind of thing um that would be absolutely to cryptozoology yeah yes yes the cryptozoologist guide to cryptozoology and no that is not what's coming up next for me so uh, that was um, excellent. And you've got to have drop bears in there then. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you got to have the drop bears. <laughs> I did consider, consider that, but I thought, I'll just stick with two for now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, point out was, um, thanks to, to your guys' podcast, the mm-hmm. so many great suggestions. Something I really wanted to implement was in the, the episode about graphic design, uh, the landscape mode. And that gave me the idea to to make just a single black and white landscape printout of all the tables and rules for the traps. Mm. So it, it'll be an easy reference for players and GMs. And um, so I added that into the download document as well. 
and I hope that helps some people out there. It did. I specifically wanted to bring this up because this product is more than just the the PDF of the Survivalist Guide to Survival. There are two separate files that come with the purchase. There's what you just said, this really cool landscape view that has the four trap archetypes that you created basically including the little sub archetypes you've got in there um that you know as you say people can put their own spins on to describe it however they wish with all the rules and how to spend all the basically crafting charts basically for spending advantage and, and triumph threat and despair but also you also included another extra pdf that has uh, really cool npc uh threat cards for bigfoot and the jackalope which uh i thought was a, a wonderful touch I forgot I did that until just now, but I'm glad I liked it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I was hoping that uh, those would be useful, um, especially with printing things out and ink and everything, that just to have that option where you don't necessarily need all the out when you just want a quick reference. So well, and they're, they're sized appropriately as well on on their you know there there's two there's two of them on a single eight and a half by eleven sheet, but they're sized to be cut out, and when you cut them out, they're the perfect size for standard threat you know threat cards. So, for those of us who are card junkies and keep a little you know index card <laughs> file of all of our NPCs, these fit right in. It's wonderful. Great, thank you. Yeah. So, okay, man. I got to ask, because you, you did hint at it a moment ago, since we're not going to see the cryptozoologist guide to cryptozoology, <laughs> what, what is next for you, for B-Movie Gaming Studio, and for the Foundry? Well, I'm going to be trying to represent my namesake in a setting I'm working on, mm-hmm. um, though it's far from being finished. Uh, I'll be taking inspiration from movies like Mars Attacks, a video game to show all humans, or the show Mystery Science Theater 3000. But I'm developing what I'm tentatively calling a retro sci-fi monster town setting. Uh, <laughs> it borrows heavily from both classic and cheesy sci-fi and monster movies. And the setting will include everything from mad scientists using atomic power to create incredible monsters, to invading aliens with uh, psionic powers, and teenagers from outer space with ray guns and a whole lot more all set in mid-century america i i that makes me grin ear to freaking <laughs> ear dude that is so up my alley i can't even tell you um awesome and the walking title right now is the atomic tales of san Bobanco. <laughs> that's greatness <laughs> which i don't know how familiar listeners are with the la area but there might be some uh some references caught in that in that name <laughs> Oh, uh, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Dude, that, that, is, that is just fantastic. I, I can't wait. So, listeners, listen, if you have not picked up a survivalist guide to survival, it's less than three bucks on the Foundry. It is completely worth it. It's got resources for players. As a GM, I am, I, I am already excited to be using it um, in terms of the resources it provides me. Mm. But more importantly, listen, for you designers out there, you can learn a lot from this, not only in terms of its design from just a pure design standpoint, because it's a beautifully designed document, but more than that, you know, Caleb, what you introduce in some of, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail because I don't want to give away the farm, but a lot of the things you introduce, not only in, in trap crafting, but also in talents and even in little things that have to do with like the special abilities of the beasts of legend that you provide, they are a wonderful class to teach people to go beyond the norm when it comes to how abilities can work in terms of manipulating symbols um, and and dice control, which is something that, quite frankly, doesn't get enough love in this system right now. Mm. Um, there's some very unique things that you've accomplished here, and it, it's it, it's very well done, sir. You know, and 
you know, you, you tout yourself as an inexperienced RPG, but it certainly doesn't show from this. Agreed. So thank you for working so hard on this and being such a strong member of the community and bringing this to us all because it's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful resource, Caleb. It really is. Thank you so much for that because it was this podcast and even back to Auto 66 that really inspired a lot of my RPG uh with fantasy flight and everything and to start development on this i've never done graphic design before i've never done really serious rpg development before but thank you guys for helping the community to be able to do things like this and i really makes me feel good to be able to have produced something like this with everyone's help mm. absolutely man, fantastic i i just i can't i can't wait to see what's next man i i am I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled so, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on to talk mm. with us today. Um, we look forward to, to with, with eager, bated breath, uh, <laughs> for, for what's next from you. So, thank you. Thank you. All right, Chris. So, um, Caleb, absolutely fantastic to have you on board. Um, and hopefully we'll be uh, talking to you on the show again soon. That would be awesome. I'd love to. Awesome. All right, Chris, um, I think that we've got some questions that we need to uh, get to answered tonight. What do you think? Oh, we might as well slide underneath that hammer. Under the Hammer. And welcome to Under the Hammer, the segment where we answer your games and rules questions about the Genesis RPG as it impacts both rules, content creation, and play. And we've got some very thought-provoking questions this week. Now, of course, if you would like to join and get your questions to run to the top of the queue, just visit patreon.com forward slash Forge Genesis and become a tier two supporter today. So, Chris, before we get into things, we have a correction from our last episode, uh, one that was brought to our attention by the illustrious Christopher Rithenbeck, who was very quick on the mark. Uh, so thank you for pointing this out. Um, and it's a, a point that I completely missed. <laughs> oh, dum-dum-dum. Do tell. All right. So firstly, thanks uh, to everyone uh, for the positive feedback on the episode and for letting us know how you've been using zones or uh, similar systems in your games. Uh, that was great to hear and how that an explanation of uh, the vehicle mechanics uh, does work uh, for you and that you've got a lot out of it. So thank you all for that. Uh, so the correction that uh, Christopher has pointed out is regarding the vicious quality and other qualities that affect critical hits. Now, we mentioned uh, during the episode that Vicious doesn't apply to critical hits, and this was something that was actually corrected in the errata, which is on the top of page four, where it says um, for page 231 of the core rulebook, under vehicle critical hits in the first paragraph, the sentence effects that apply to the results of critical injuries, such as the Vicious quality, do not apply to critical hits. That's where I got my information from. But the, uh, the, the errata continues and says, this should be changed to effects that apply to the results of critical injuries do not apply to critical hits. Note the removal of vicious. So, so basically, vicious does still apply 
to critical hits. And uh, that generated quite a lengthy discussion on uh, the Genesis community group, uh, which was great. I uh, love it when the when people sort of like talk about issues that we raise on the show. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's something that I hadn't considered. Um, and uh, it's it's not something which is easy to do. Especially when you start talking about vehicles where you've got to do 10 points of damage before you can do anything to it. Um, and that's if it's not armoured, because you still have to do one point of damage, whether it be character scale wounds or whether it be vehicle scale um, hull trauma, to be able to get a critical injury in, uh, or a critical hit in the case of vehicles. So uh, Vicious still applies. If you've ever watched um, uh, any episode where somebody's, well, look, I'll use Star Wars, for example, where um, Anakin in episode two, I don't normally like to quote that film, but um, <laughs> in episode two where he I puts... Hate sand. <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly hated sand in the last episode, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> So uh, when he puts the lightsaber through uh, Zam Wessel's uh, speeder, uh, that you know it's a, it's a different thing because it's got breach. But you can certainly imagine that with somebody wielding a, a big axe, that um, you know they they try to attack uh, a vehicle and um, just through sheer luck um, roll a a lot of um, uh, a lot of successes and manage to get that in that suddenly it's you know hit the fuel line and suddenly the vehicle careers out of control and crashes into yeah. something with an almighty explosion so uh so yeah i but, just thought uh, i just thought that was anakin's midichlorian power <laughs> you know his 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 heroic ability midichlorians um that's it and you know you know Huli, you yeah. know chris ruth chris ruthenbeck wasn't the only one who who caught that mistake when you were saying it i i knew that you were wrong i just i didn't want to I, I didn't want to be rude and and correct you on the show but i knew and you, i didn't i know i didn't really know <laughs> i missed it too i missed the errata too so so yeah no um no seriously very it's very cool man coming together as a community um which i absolutely love but yeah. uh yeah, you know, see, see, yeah, man, see, see back, see back's on point. He's always on point. <laughs> Absolutely, and uh, you know, we're by no means perfect, and I know that Christopher is a bit of an expert uh, in the vehicle rules. So, a I'm, bit? I'm, okay, a lot. Um, so I'm, uh, you know, glad that uh, that we got that sorted. And I know that his show's not on our network, but uh, he recently did a uh, an episode on uh, the vehicle rules as well, um, which uh, is. Absolutely fantastic as well. So uh, if you if you're wanting some further pointers, uh, go and take a look at um, Excess Advantage. It's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a good show. It's yep. a good show. Um, all right, Chris, we had some great questions. So um, you know, moving away from our mistakes, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's take a, a bit of a, a wander through these questions. So what's our first one? Yeah, this one came in via Brian Flood, who's actually one of our patrons, one of our Jenna Smiths. Um, <laughs> who uh, this came in via Facebook? And he yep. said he asked the following, and this is a vehicle-related question. Yep. He says, "When a vehicle is traveling through difficult terrain, forcing the pilot to make a steering check, does that account for his or her action for that turn?" Or is it a consequence of his forced movement or reposition maneuver? The reason I ask is we have a we have a general understanding that rolling dice is usually 
in action, in structured time, like combat. But if navigating difficult terrain is a pilot's action for the turn, then I mean, how could he fire weapons? You know, for example, if, if the fighters are flying through a canyon, how mechanically do the pilots both navigate that terrain, dangerous driving, and fire at their opponents? It's a really good question, and it's something that the Genesis rules do not answer. Um, when we talk about the example that we used in the last episode, so uh, if you if you didn't listen to that episode and this is the first time you've uh, joined us on the podcast, uh, go and take a look at uh, at that episode, and you'll know what we're talking about. But but basically, at the end of uh, the the turn that uh, because I was GMing and Chris was was acting as the player. Um, what happened is that uh, he rolled a despair. Um, no, sorry, I rolled a triumph. And what uh, the way that I work that is that suddenly he's come across um, some difficult terrain, which will continue on in a later episode. So uh, what I'd said at that point was that in the next turn, you're going to have to make a dangerous driving check. Now, obviously, dangerous driving is a vehicle-only action. So what that means is that the player is going to have to do the dangerous driving and not the pew-pewing of the weapons. When you've got uh, a vehicle that has uh, a pilot and a co-pilot, well, the pilot can basically take over those sorts of weapons. Um, If you've got a gunner, the gunner can be taking over those sorts of weapons. But if you're on your own, it's going to be a little bit more difficult because your action is going to suddenly disappear through the the use of that pilot-only action, which is dangerous driving. So the drama that we have is that how do you represent, as uh, as Brian has suggested, how do you su- how do you do it if you're going through a canyon and you're dangerous driving, but you're also firing weapons, you know, a la Independence Day, for example. How would you how about, do that? How about how about you know Finn and Ray taking the Millennium Falcon through a you know the wreck of a Star Destroyer with Tie Fighters chasing through them? Right. Uh, I mean, I mean, in that instance, obviously with Finn and Ray, they wouldn't have to deal with that situation. She's literally spending her action to make a defensive driving check. Right. Um, but the, the 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 stormtroopers and the Tie Fighters. They can't do that. They're yeah. shooting and making dangerous driving checks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, even if we go back to the Empire Strikes Back as well, where the ties are flying through the the asteroid field, uh, the Falcon isn't firing back, even though that it's got turrets. Um, you know, that's that's really representing that the only way to get through this is to have Han at the controls and his, uh, uh, you know, his, his co-pilot in the form of Chewie being able to get through that. Now, obviously, we're, we're sort of comparing movies to a game system and it's sort of you have to reverse engineer it the other way to see how the game would handle those sorts of concepts. Um, but in that sort of thing, we see TIE Fighters. They're basically blowing up all the time. And I think the only way to do what we're what Brian is asking is that just because you're in difficult terrain doesn't necessarily mean that you need to make a dangerous driving check what it does mean is that if you don't you're gonna force a collision what are your thoughts on that chris that's the raw answer yeah if you want to get down to it i mean i mean rules is written Mm. if you if you choose not to take the dangerous driving action Mm. and instead take a pot shot at the guy you're flying in your scenario Mm. ryan Mm. um you know or you are the stormtrooper in the tie 
fighter chasing after Ray and Finn through the guts of a abandoned Star Destroyer on Jakku. <laughs> if you spend your action to fire, you're gonna you just automatically gonna fail your defensive driving check, which means you will suffer a collision <laughs> and take your chances. That's what it comes down to. And look at what happened to those stormtroopers. <laughs> they, for the most part, got blown up inside <laughs> and, 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 and inside that Star Destroyer by crashing into crap. Okay, yep, yep. Um, it, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of you take your chances. That's the raw answer. Okay, that's the rules is written. If you don't like that and you want to do it differently, I do have a couple suggestions. Sure. The first is. There is nothing the, – the Genesis police are not going to take your dice away if you treat dangerous driving as a reactive check, okay, mm-hmm. a non-action in that scenario, right. okay? But if you do it, it needs to apply equally to both PCs and NPCs for balance, yep. okay? Mm-hmm. Another option and one that I have used in the past to great effect mm-hmm. is that if you forego the defensive driving action – Mm-hmm. The upgrades that would normally apply to the check you're about to make that you would need to make for defensive driving mm-hmm. instead apply to your attack roll. Right. And then I just have fun with the threat and despair that you're going <laughs> to roll. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean that that's that's certainly one way that uh, that I've handled it in the past. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the vehicle chases, because, you know, when it comes to Genesis, I've basically moved it more so over to the fantasy realm, where you don't necessarily have vehicle chases and whatever else. You might have, um, you might have a, a chase on, a, uh, on horseback or, or something like that. But I know that when I did the live play for the Dice Pool, that we had a chase in there where there was a carriage and the PCs were on horseback and they were chasing after this carriage. In the in Star Wars, and and I think I did this uh, as one of the segments, Chris, for uh, for Order sixty six as well, is that when it comes to it at the start of the turn, because of the way that chases are, remembering that chases aren't in Genesis, they didn't include these in the rules. That the way that you would do it is you would do your maneuvers at the start before any actions took place in that turn, but the uh, the pilot forego one of their maneuvers to do that, and so if they exactly. wanted to do another maneuver, they would then go and um, have to spend two strain if they wanted to do actions as well. That's another way to do it. But um, chases are a little bit different again, and I'm you know we will cover that in in a future episode where we go and take a look specifically at chases and and some of the ancillary rules that are around uh, vehicle combat. Um, that mm. aren't necessarily in Genesis, but the uh, yeah, this is a tricky one because there aren't any rules for it. Um, you know, one of the things that I would love to do is get Sam's take on it. Um, and if only we had him on the show a short time ago. But anyway, <laughs> so so yeah, I mean that that's how we would handle it. Um, and uh, but look, if anybody else has some suggestions on how they would handle it, um, there is a lengthy discussion which is on the Genesis community group as well. Uh, that um, please weigh in on it. So, uh, so yeah, hopefully that probably doesn't answer your question, Brian. But um, that's that's how we would do it during our game sessions, anyway. So, our next question comes from Chris Markham, um, the machine, as you called him before, Chris, um, and he's one of our newest patrons, uh, which is great. So, thanks, Chris, for that. Um, and uh, he asks via Discord, I've looked through the various books for Genesis, but don't see any rules governing how many languages 
a character knows, or any mechanics for determining this, or even learning new languages. Did I miss this, or is it non-existent? Oh my! Um, <laughs> this has been this has been a question since Star Wars, man. Yeah, it is absolutely. So, uh, short answer, Mr. Markham, no, you didn't miss anything. Um, There are no rules for the languages you know. There are no rules for the languages you can learn. Now, I can tackle this from from a Star Wars standpoint, or I can tackle it from a Genesis standpoint. Let me try and channel Sam Stewart, okay? Okay. Let me me try. Okay. Um, Because, you know, we just had a great conversation with him, and I'll try and channel him. (laughs) If if I were Sam, which I'm not, and I I wouldn't presume to rise to that level of badassery, but (laughs) if I were... I would say that as the designers were creating a generic role-playing system where the setting is completely unknown, and depending on the game and how the setting takes place, it might entirely be probable that there might not even be different languages spoken by different groups of people, Mm -hmm. um, that it would be a highly setting-specific rule that they wouldn't want to include in a generic rule system. Um, That's a very wonderful milk toast and very safe answer but the bottom line is in a game like star wars it was the same problem and there are thousands of languages in star wars right (laughs) right um the thing is though when you watch star wars it never becomes an issue right until it has to be yeah until it's there until it's there for story reasons at which point it's narrative and that's the short answer man no the rules aren't there for it because it should be narrative in nature um it should never impede on the fun of the game um and honestly i in terms of whether a player, like I'll tell you how I handle this, mm-hmm. and I will tell you how I, uh, two two very good suggestions if you want something more codified as to how I have personally seen other GMs handle it, mm-hmm. both in games that I've witnessed and games that I have been a player in. Okay, right. right. Here's how I handle it: I let my players tell me what languages they speak, if it matters. Mm-hmm. That's usually done during session zero. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, man, what what languages do you does your character speak? And if they say, oh yes, I speak ancient Draconic, <laughs> I'm like, I just I just raise my eyebrow at them, and I go, really? <laughs> and they go, oh yeah. And then if that sounds like BS, I'll turn to the other players at the table and say, guys, what languages do you think he would speak? <laughs> <laughs> and the group usually comes to a pretty firm consensus. Right. All right, yep. unless you've got a real douche nozzle at the table. Um, you know, most people are willing to to have their suspension of disbelief and be completely honest with their answer. Okay, mm, yeah. that's how I handle it. Mm. Um, two non rules as written, just house rules that I've seen used. One of which I've witnessed was I had a dude basically say, "You know, a number of languages equal to your intellect score." Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which is actually goes back to to, to third edition D anD D. Yep. Um, and it, that's a very simple and easy house rule to do it. Yep. Um, the more intriguing one that I've seen though, and I was actually a player in a short campaign where this is how the, the, and there were several languages and it was a fantasy setting. Mm. And this is how the GM did it was he basically said, um, he started off by introducing a new talent and it was a ranked talent called linguist. Okay. Um, tier one, five XP, but it worked the same way that, um, knack for it does. So when you took your first rank, you learned another language of your choice. Mm hmm. Every subsequent rank you took, you know, again, at tier two, tier three, tier four, tier five, at higher and higher XP, Hmm. you learned two more languages. Right. And that was very simple, very easy. Um, 
and 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 the, the languages we started knowing were entirely determined by our species archetype. So if you were every, everybody spoke the common tongue, and then if you oh if you were elven or half elven, you also spoke elf elven. You know, mm. if you were dwarvish, you also spoke dwarven. Stuff like that. Yep. Um, but I thought that was a fantastic uh, way to go about doing it. Yeah. And if you're not keen on introducing a new talent entirely, you could simply alter knack for it to be one of two things. That when you take knack for it, you can get a setback die removal or you can learn a language. Mm. And the first time you take it, it's one, either one skill for setback die removal or one language. Yep. And, and subsequent ranks, you either get two skills for setback die removal or you learn two languages. Mm. Um, those, are, those are the best in play house rules that I've personally experienced. If you need to codify it, if the narrative way of handling it just doesn't work for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. I've seen it uh, used in a couple of ways. Um, very similar to what you've just said, Chris. Um, uh, one was the, uh, the, you gain a number of languages equal to your intellect. Um, and obviously if your intellect goes up, you gain an additional language on top of that. Um, and then uh, the, that particular story or campaign they introduced a skill, a skill called linguistics. So what happens is that, you know, you know whatever languages that you've, you know, but if you wanted to learn a new one, you would make a linguistics role. So probably really good in things like Cthulhu-based campaigns or things like that, that uh, you, the GM works out what the difficulty for the language is based on how old it is, how well used it is. So, um, you know, if they were talking about, um, you know, a forgotten culture that um, has some writing on the wall, that it may be a case of writing, oh, make a linguistics role. Uh, and the difficulty may be, you know, four, uh, three or four dice. So you work out how much they know based on your uh, the successes and advantages and, and threat that comes about. So you might be successful, but you might roll three threat. So you can kind of get the basics, but perhaps that you misunderstood a word or two. Um, you know, I think of Evil Dead um, <laughs> with the book. So, uh, you know, there are things that you can obviously get wrong. That's another way to do it as well if you want to introduce a new skill into into your campaign. But um, my, uh, I think that the, the way that I have always done it, especially with Star Wars, is that it doesn't matter until it matters. So, yes. you know, if we look at Rise of Skywalker, for example, without getting into spoilers for those who haven't seen it, um, there is a certain part where there is a language that is spoken that nobody knows what it is, but a character does. Um, and that sort of leads into another story. If, if that was an RPG session, you'd be uh, looking at it from the perspective of that. Um, okay, so... Make a check. Yes, you understand it. And there might be some threat, but you can't actually say it because of this reason. Uh, so, you know, th that's another way to do it as well. Um, and that could be something similar as cultures or Outer Rim or um, anything that... Uh, what's the other one that's in there as well? That uh, Core Worlds. 
that it depends on where the language is from. That's another way to handle it too. So um, but yeah. yeah, and you and you can use both these rules too. Like if it's mm. common tongues that are spoken today and alive and active, you can use the talent method yep. um, if you want to codify it. And then I'm a huge fan of of Huli's suggestion of the skill method for languages that are ancient or hidden or forbidden or aren't spoken anymore. Mm. All right. Mm. Uh, you know, even in something like a modern setting, you know, being able to understand ancient Aramaic or for for for, for Pete's sake, Latin. Okay, yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, you, you could, yeah, you could make that a successful, you know, knowledge education check yeah. or 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 co- a cultural check as well. So yeah, yeah totally, totally about. Yeah. So when you when you're looking at uh, realms of Taranoth, you've got knowledge forbidden and you've got knowledge law. So you know, you can easily use those depending on you know, Absolutely. what it's been used for. So uh, there's some practical application for it as well. So as I Absolutely. said, it doesn't matter until it matters. So, <laughs> so yeah. So what's our last question, Chris? Our last question comes in from Will uh, via Facebook, and he says the following. Is there any quote-unquote official word on how well magic-related talents from Realms of Terranoth and the Expanded Player's Guide should be expected to work together? Um, more generally, how have people running games with both handled it? Um, I like the new magic talents, but combined with Signature Spell and Terranaut's other magic talents, seem like they could easily have a few too many difficulty reductions on a single spell by combining a lot of them. Yep. And if you go back to the episode where we actually spoke to Sam and Keith uh, about the EPG, uh, the, the short answer is that their design philosophy when it came to the Expanded Player's Guide, is that it would stand with the base rules uh, for Genesis. It wouldn't necessarily stand with Terranoth because FFG have had this long-running, I guess, policy uh, that you shouldn't need to necessarily buy all the books to be able to run the game. Um, and, uh, you know, that's that's something that we see in things like the two Clone Wars books that came out for uh, their Star Wars line is that there was no expectation that you had to have bought Force and Destiny or that you had to have bought, you know, all three lines to play the game. Um, it gave you enough that all that you needed was one of the three core rules. So the same sort of thing applies here that the Expanded Player's Guide was only designed with the idea that it would stand together with the Genesis rules, uh, the core rules, uh, but not with Realms of Terranoth. Um, and Sam even cautioned us to, um, you know, think very carefully uh, if a player or a GM was bringing in those uh, those talents into Realms of Terranoth. That's the that's as official a word as we're going to get, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. At least until Edge Studios gets up and running and decides to exactly. announce something more officially. Yep. You want my opinion? Yep. Screw it. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I've, I mean, I mean, and this is, that's, it, it, listen, all, all, everything Huli just said is right and it's good advice and you really need to be careful. Will, I've run fantasy games with both the Terranoth Magic Talents and the EPG at this point. Mm. I haven't had any freaking issues. No. None. No. None. None whatsoever. However, let me put a big freaking stamping caveat on that. Okay. Signature spell is dangerous Mm -hmm. if it is not run correctly and we have talked about this before Mm. 
Because his specific example was saying signature spell when combined with Terranos other magic talents. And I'm assuming he's referring to Elementalist, which allows you to apply an elemental descriptor to you know attack spells without having to increase the cost. Yeah, yeah. Those two can't combine. Correct. Like, they can't. Mm. Signature spell is the signature spell. And, and this, is, this is implied and validated with questions we've answered. Implements don't work with it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not not difficulty reducing ones. Signature spell, like that's the recipe. Signature spell is signature spell. Like when you lay it out, you say, "Yo, yo, this is the this is the spell, and this is the recipe, and this is the normal difficulty. Take one off that. That's my difficulty." Yep. In other words, you have a set recipe with a set difficulty. It cannot be modified, no matter what other talents you have, no matter what other implements you're using. At right. least it shouldn't be. Mm. That's that's how you should be running it. Yep. Okay. Yep. So as a result, personally, I haven't found that type of cross talent jargon like like weirdness happening mm. because that's how I choose to enforce signature spell yep. because signature spell is stupid powerful. Mm. Okay, mm. so if you're running it that way, at least in my experience, I have not had any of those issues. But again, wisdom. You know, mm. the the you know Sam and Keith were both, as Huli said, very trepidatious about that, and 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 said, "Look, you know, it's it's they, they basically just said, just be careful, mm. and, and be careful if you allow these things in. Do what I do with my players and set the expectation appropriately, and say, look, I'm going to allow the <laughs> so it's like Futurama. <laughs> I'm going to allow this. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm going to allow this, but I reserve the right." to force you to not make that combination or to remove the talent from the game and I'll give you your XP back and you can retrain, mm. but that's my prerogative. Mm. And I, I get that buy-in from the player the moment the talent's introduced. So if you're going to do it, do that. Yep. Okay. And mm. just be watchful. That's all. Yep. I, yeah, there's nothing really that I can add to that. Um, you know, I've, I've done the same thing with uh, my legacy of fire game. Um, I've allowed players to use um, talents from the Expanded Players Guide, and I have not had a problem yet. Um, they still find it really, really hard to cast spells because of, of strain. Um, they still have fun. They think that, uh, you know, that they get all excited about using these abilities um, because they look cool and they they believe that they're cool and they are cool. So as long as everybody's having fun at the table and it's not breaking your game, there's no problem doing it. Um, I know that this is, is going to be a little bit out of, um, uh, you know, away from magic, but one of my players recently uh, has sort of, he's he's more about sort of being, being sprightly is probably the best word. And he uh, wanted to introduce uh, to his character, he wanted to introduce parkour. The parkour isn't from Realms of Terranoth. It's not from the core rules. It's something from Shadow of the, of the Beanstalk. Parkour! So, parkour! <laughs> got, got to remember the explanation mark. And um, I, was, I was a little bit trepidatious about that. I, I didn't know whether I wanted to start bringing in some of those because uh, it wasn't designed to be read in conjunction with it. But ultimately, the player really, really wanted it. And if I can make my players happy at the table, my job is done. So I've said, you know what? Let it go. And I did exactly what you did, Chris. And you just need to say that if you want this and it does seem to break, which I don't think it will, but if it does, well, we're going to have to go through a bit of a retraining process. But, 
You know, they're happy. I'm happy because my concerns have been heard. Uh, my players are all happy because they know that I'm wanting to to make sure that they're having a good time. And yeah, so I think that's the best way to handle it. Try it. Um, let it happen. Um, and if everybody's happy, if it if it doesn't, yeah, just as Chris said, set that expectation so that you don't. Um, you know, there's no surprises that suddenly you come to the next session and say, "Oh, look, I've decided that that particular." Uh, that particular talent um, does not work, so you're going to have to leave it. They're shell-shocked. They suddenly get into this frame of mind that it's an adversarial thing, and that's something that we've touted, and I know I've touted it all the way through the time that I've been podcasting, is that when it comes to Genesis or any role-playing game, try to move away from that adversarial nature of the GM versus the players. Yeah. Uh, simple as yeah, that. Yeah, it, it is collaboration more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Good questions, though, guys. Very mm. good questions. Yeah. And I love, love, love getting them. Mm. But, Huli, I'm afraid that does indeed bring us to the end of yet another show. Indeed it does. But we're going to be back with a new episode very, very shortly, which I've been looking forward to for quite a while. Oh, heavens, yes. This will be our <laughs> final episode in the Demystifying the Mystical series as we put the cherry on our mutative cake. <laughs> that what? Disgusting <laughs> now that said it. But as we'll see, not much of a cherry because it's not going to apply too terribly much to mutations. <laughs> but we will be taking a long, hard, and deep look at implements in terms of not only the magic system, but also reskinning them as well. Awesome. I'm really super excited for that. You know, I've said in the past that I love implements so much. It's such a fantastic mechanic that was brought in. Um, you know, it's going to be a blast to develop them for our listeners. So, uh, so yeah, looking forward to that. And speaking of you good people, while you wait for that episode, please continue to send us any other questions that you might have that we can talk about um, in Under the Hammer or perhaps even, you know, a show topic or two, uh, you know, being a, a GM or a player. I know that we've uh, recently got uh, a question which uh, I was talking to the, uh, the particular player about. And it goes on for four pages. So um, that'll be an interesting show topic, um, which is, is one that really uh, affects people right now in the, uh, the COVID world that we're in. And it's all about online play and uh, how you should be conducting yourself um, as a player as well as a GM. But that'll be for a future episode. Um, but, uh, yeah, any questions that you might have about, um, you know, Genesis or being a, a GM or a player or just anything gaming related, any questions you like, you know, send it to us. And how can they do that? Chris? Email. <laughs> uh, email us at forgegenesis at d20radio.com or post it. <laughs> and I'm not talking about... The wonderful sticky notes, although they're so useful in our hobby. I'm talking about the electronic version of posting. Post it up via one of our many social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, the YouTubes, or Reddit by searching at Forge Genesis. And we continue to have fantastic conversations on the D20 Radio Discord channel. Yeah. Uh, and of course, 
dedicated conversations with our own Jenna Smiths, our own <laughs> patrons on our very own podcast Discord server. And yes, absolutely. I love Jenna Smiths. That's great. Um, <laughs> and we would love to hear from you all. So don't forget that you can also join the even larger discussion in the D20 Radio Facebook group where we nerds congregate to cross-pollinate. And please, please, pretty please, don't forget to give us a like or a follow uh, as well on any of our social media sites. Uh, you can also drop us a review on those sites or your favorite podcatcher, and that includes iTunes and Spotify. Uh, you can also visit our website at forgegenesis.com. Well, that's a wrap for us. Thank you all for listening. And that was an amazing episode. I love building that tree. So good. So good. <laughs> But uh, hopefully you can join us next time as we continue to explore the Genesis role-playing game in all of its glory. I'm GM Hooli. May your triumphs be many and your despairs be few. And I'm GM Chris, wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, The Forge Podcast, helping you hone your gaming edge. The Forge, a Genesis podcast, is a proud member of the T20 Radio Network. For more information about the network, visit www.t20radio.com. The Forge is a fan-generated podcast. All the information provided on the podcast, social media, and related website is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games or any of their licensors. The content of this podcast remains the property of The Forge, a Genesis RPG podcast, and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. The Genesis role-playing game, Genesis logo, Genesis Foundry, content, and all material remain the property of Fantasy Flight Games. All products available on the Genesis Foundry website remain the property of their respective companies and individuals. For more information about the Forge Genesis RPG podcast, visit www.forgegenesis.com. Genesis.com.